This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part One, Chapter Ten. In a few minutes the three hunters were before a crackling fire. The captain and the reporter were there. Pencroft looked from one to the other, his capybara in his hand, without saying a word. "'Well, yes, my brave fellow,' cried the reporter. "'Fire, real fire, which will roast this splendid pig perfectly, and we will have a feast presently.' "'But who lighted it?' asked Pencroft. "'The sun!' Gideon Spilett was quite right in his reply. It was the sun which had furnished the heat which so astonished Pencroft. The sailor could scarcely believe his eyes, and he was so amazed that he did not think of questioning the engineer. "'Had you a burning-glass, sir?' asked Herbert of Harding. "'No, my boy,' replied he. "'But I made one.' And he showed the apparatus which served for a burning-glass. It was simply two glasses which he had taken from his own and the reporter's watches. Having filled them with water, and rendered their edges adhesive by means of a little clay, he thus fabricated a regular burning-glass, which, concentrating the solar rays on some very dry moss, soon caused it to blaze. The sailor considered the apparatus. Then he gazed at the engineer without saying a word. Only a look plainly expressed his opinion, that if Cyrus Harding was not a magician, he was certainly no ordinary man. At last speech returned to him, and he cried, "'Note that, Mr. Spilett, note that down on your paper.' "'It is noted,' replied the reporter. Then, Neb helping him, the seaman arranged the spit, and the capybara, properly cleaned, was soon roasting like a suckling pig before a clear, crackling fire. The chimneys had again become more habitable, not only because the passages were warmed by the fire, but because the partitions of wood and mud had been re-established. It was evident that the engineer and his companions had employed their day well. Cyrus Harding had almost entirely recovered his strength, and had proved it by climbing to the upper plateau. From this point his eye, accustomed to estimate heights and distances, was fixed for a long time on the cone, the summit of which he wished to reach the next day. The mountain, situated about six miles to the northwest, appeared to him to measure three thousand five hundred feet above the level of the sea. Consequently the gaze of an observer posted on its summit would extend over a radius of at least fifty miles. Therefore it was probable that Harding could easily solve the question of island or continent, to which he attached so much importance. They supped capitally. The flesh of the capybara was declared excellent. Their sargassum and the almonds of the stone-pine completed the repast, during which the engineer spoke little. He was preoccupied with projects for the next day. Once or twice Pencroft gave forth some ideas upon what it would be best to do. But Cyrus Harding, who was evidently of a methodical mind, only shook his head without uttering a word. "'Tomorrow,' he repeated, "'we shall know what we have to depend upon.' and we will act accordingly." The meal ended. Fresh armfuls of wood were thrown on the fire, and the inhabitants of the chimneys, including the faithful top, were soon buried in a deep sleep. No incident disturbed this peaceful night, and the next day, the twenty-ninth of March, 
fresh and active they awoke, ready to undertake the excursion which must determine their fate. All was ready for the start. The remains of the capybara would be enough to sustain Harding and his companions for at least twenty-four hours. Besides, they hoped to find more food on the way. As the glasses had been returned to the watches of the engineer and reporter, Pencroft burned a little linen to serve as tinder. As to flint, that would not be wanting in these regions of plutonic origin. It was half-past seven in the morning when the explorers, armed with sticks, left the chimneys. Following Pencroft's advice, it appeared best to take the road already traversed through the forest, and to return by another route. It was also the most direct way to reach the mountain. They turned the south angle, and followed the left bank of the river, which was abandoned at the point where it formed an elbow towards the southwest. The path, already trodden under the evergreen trees, was found, and at nine o'clock Cyrus Harding and his companions had reached the western border of the forest. The ground, till then, very little undulated, boggy at first, dry and sandy afterwards, had a gentle slope, which ascended from the shore towards the interior of the country. A few very timid animals were seen under the forest trees. Top quickly started them, but his master soon called him back, for the time had not come to commence hunting. That would be attended to later. The engineer was not a man who would allow himself to be diverted from his fixed idea. It might even have been said that he did not observe the country at all, either in its configuration or in its natural productions, his great aim being to climb the mountain before him, and therefore straight towards it he went. At ten o'clock a halt of a few minutes was made. On leaving the forest the mountain system of the country appeared before the explorers. The mountain was composed of two cones. The first, truncated at a height of about two thousand five hundred feet, was sustained by buttresses, which appeared to branch out like the talons of an immense claw set on the ground. Between these were narrow valleys, bristling with trees, the last clumps of which rose to the top of the lowest cone. There appeared to be less vegetation on that side of the mountain, which was exposed to the northeast, and deep fissures could be seen which, no doubt, were watercourses. On the first cone rested a second, slightly rounded, and placed a little on one side, like a great round hat, cocked over the ear. A Scotchman would have said, "'His bonnet was a thochter It appeared formed of bare earth, here and there pierced by reddish rocks. They wished to reach the second cone, and, proceeding along the ridge of the spurs, seemed the best way by which to gain it. "'We are on volcanic ground,' Cyrus Harding had said and his companions following him began to ascend by degrees on the back of a spur, which, by a winding and consequently more accessible path, joined the first plateau. The ground had evidently been convulsed by subterranean force. Here and there stray blocks, numerous debris of basalt and pumice-stone, were met with. In isolated groups rose fir-trees, which, some hundred feet lower, at the bottom of the narrow gorges, formed massive shades almost impenetrable to the sun's rays. During the first part of the ascent, Herbert remarked on the footprints which indicated the recent passage of large animals. "'Perhaps these beasts will not let us pass by willingly,' said Pencroft. "'Well,' replied the reporter, 
who had already hunted the tiger in India and the lion in Africa, we shall soon learn how successfully to encounter them. But in the meantime we must be upon our guard. They ascended but slowly. The distance, increased by detours and obstacles which could not be surmounted directly, was long. Sometimes, too, the ground suddenly fell, and they found themselves on the edge of a deep chasm which they had to go round. Thus, in retracing their steps so as to find some practicable path, much time was employed, and fatigue undergone for nothing. At twelve o'clock, when the small band of adventurers halted for breakfast at the foot of a large group of firs, near a little stream which fell in cascades, they found themselves still halfway from the first plateau, which most probably they would not reach until nightfall. From this point the view of the sea was much extended, but on the right the high promontory prevented their seeing whether there was land beyond it. On the left the site extended several miles to the north, but on the northwest, at the point occupied by the explorers, it was cut short by the ridge of a fantastically shaped spur, which formed a powerful support of the central cone. At one o'clock the ascent was continued. They slanted more towards the southwest, and again entered among thick bushes. There, under the shade of the trees, fluttered several couple of gallinaceae, belonging to the pheasant species. They were tragopans, ornamented by a pendant skin which hangs over their throats, and by two round horns planted behind the eyes. Among these birds, which were about the size of a fowl, the female was uniformly brown, while the male was gorgeous in his red plumage, decorated with white spots. Gideon Spilett, with a stone cleverly and vigorously thrown, killed one of these tragopans, on which Pencroft, made hungry by the fresh air, had cast greedy eyes. After leaving the region of bushes, the party, assisted by resting on each other's shoulders, climbed for about a hundred feet up a steep acclivity and reached a level place, with very few trees, where the soil appeared volcanic. It was necessary to ascend by zigzags to make the slope more easy, for it was very steep and the footing being exceedingly precarious required the greatest caution. Neb and Herbert took the lead, Pencroft the rear, the captain and the reporter between them. The animals which frequented these heights, and there were numerous traces of them, must necessarily belong to those races of sure foot and supple spine, chamois or goat. Several were seen, but this was not the name Pencroft gave them, for all of a sudden sheep he shouted all stopped about fifty feet from half a dozen animals of a large size with strong horns bent back and flattened toward the point with a woolly fleece hidden under long silky hair of a tawny color they were not ordinary sheep but a species usually found in the mountainous regions of the temperate zone to which herbert gave the name of the musman have they legs and chops asked the sailor "'Yes,' replied Herbert. "'Well, then, they are sheep,' said Pencroft. The animals, motionless among the blocks of basalt, gazed with an astonished eye, as if they saw humid bipeds for the first time. Then, their fears suddenly aroused, they disappeared, bounding over the rocks. "'Good-bye till we meet again,' cried Pencroft, as he watched them, in such a comical tone that Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, 
Herbert and Neb could not help laughing. The ascent was continued. Here and there were traces of lava. Sulphur springs sometimes stopped their way, and they had to go round them. In some places the sulphur had formed crystals, among other substances, such as whitish cinders made of an infinity of little feldspar crystals. In approaching the first plateau, formed by the truncating of the lower cone, the difficulties of the ascent were very great. Towards four o'clock the extreme zone of the trees had been passed. There only remained here and there a few twisted, stunted pines, which must have had a hard life in resisting at this altitude the high winds from the open sea. Happily for the engineer and his companions the weather was beautiful, the atmosphere tranquil, for a high breeze at an elevation of three thousand feet would have hindered their proceedings. The purity of the sky at the zenith was felt through the transparent air. A perfect calm reigned around them. They could not see the sun, then hid by the vast screen of the upper cone, which masked the half-horizon of the west, and whose enormous shadow, stretching to the shore, increased as the radiant luminary sank in its diurnal course. Vapors, mist rather than clouds, began to appear in the east, and assume all the prismatic colors under the influence of the solar rays. Five hundred feet only separated the explorers from the plateau, which they wished to reach so as to establish there an encampment for the night, but these five hundred feet were increased to more than two miles by the zigzags which they had to describe. The soil, as it were, slid under their feet. The slope often presented such an angle that they slipped when the stones worn by the air did not give a sufficient support. Evening came on by degrees, and it was almost night when Cyrus Harding and his companions, much fatigued by an ascent of seven hours, arrived at the plateau of the first cone. It was then necessary to prepare an encampment, and to restore their strength by eating first and sleeping afterwards. This second stage of the mountain rose on a base of rocks, among which it would be easy to find a retreat. Fuel was not abundant. However, a fire could be made by means of the moss and dry brushwood, which covered certain parts of the plateau. While the sailor was preparing his hearth with stones which he put to this use, Neb and Herbert occupied themselves with getting a supply of fuel. They soon returned with a load of brushwood. The steel was struck, the burnt linen caught the sparks of flint, and under Neb's breath a crackling fire showed itself in a few minutes under the shelter of the rocks. Their object in lighting a fire was only to enable them to withstand the cold temperatures of the night, as it was not employed in cooking the bird which Neb kept for the next day. The remains of the capybara and some dozens of the stone-pine almonds formed their supper. It was not half-past six when all was finished. Cyrus Harding then thought of exploring in the half-light the large circular layer which supported the upper cone of the mountain. Before taking any rest, he wished to know if it was possible to get round the base of the cone in the case of its sides being too steep and its summit being inaccessible. This question preoccupied him, for it was possible that from the way the hat inclined, that is to say, towards the north, the plateau was not practicable. 
Also, if the summit of the mountain could not be reached on one side, and if on the other they could not get round the base of the cone, it would be impossible to survey the western part of the country, and their object in making the ascent would in part be altogether unattained. The engineer accordingly, regardless of fatigue, leaving Pencroft and Neb to arrange the beds, and Gideon Spilett to note the incidents of the day, began to follow the edge of the plateau, going towards the north. Herbert accompanied him. The night was beautiful and still. The darkness was not yet deep. Cyrus Harding and the boy walked near each other, without speaking. In some places the plateau opened before them, and they passed without hindrance. In others, obstructed by rocks, there was only a narrow path, in which two persons could not walk abreast. After a walk of twenty minutes, Cyrus Harding and Herbert were obliged to stop. From this point the slope of the two cones became one. No shoulder here separated the two parts of the mountain. The slope being inclined almost seventy degrees, the path became impracticable. But if the engineer and the boy were obliged to give up thoughts of following a circular direction, in return an opportunity was given for ascending the cone. In fact, before them opened a deep hollow. It was the rugged mouth of the crater by which the eruptive liquid matter had escaped at the periods when the volcano was still in activity. Hardened lava and crusted scoria formed a sort of natural staircase of large steps, which would greatly facilitate the ascent to the summit of the mountain. Harding took all this in at a glance, and without hesitating, followed by the lad, he entered the enormous chasm in the midst of an increasing obscurity. There was still a height of a thousand feet to overcome. Would the interior acclivities of the crater be practicable? It would soon be seen. The persevering engineer resolved to continue his ascent until he was stopped. Happily these acclivities wound up the interior of the volcano and favored their ascent. As to the volcano itself, it could not be doubted that it was completely extinct. No smoke escaped from its sides, not a flame could be seen in the dark hollows, not a roar, not a mutter, no trembling even issued from this black well, which perhaps reached far into the bowels of the earth. The atmosphere inside the crater was filled with no sulphurous vapor. It was more than the sleep of a volcano, it was its complete extinction. Cyrus Harding's attempt would succeed. Little by little, Herbert and he, climbing up the sides of the interior, saw the crater widen above their heads. The radius of this circular portion of the sky, framed by the edge of the cone, increased obviously. At each step, as it were, that the explorers made, fresh stars entered the field of their vision. The magnificent constellations of the southern sky shone resplendently. At the zenith glittered the splendid Antares in the Scorpion, and not far was Alpha Centauri, which is believed to be the nearest star to the terrestrial globe. Then, as the crater widened, appeared Fomohaut of the fish, the southern triangle, and lastly, nearly at the Antarctic pole, the glittering southern cross, which replaces the polar star of the northern hemisphere. It was nearly eight o'clock when Cyrus Harding and Herbert set foot on the highest ridge of the mountain at the summit of the cone. 
it was then perfectly dark, and their gaze could not extend over a radius of two miles. Did the sea surround this unknown land, or was it connected in the west with some continent of the Pacific? It could not yet be made out. Towards the west, a cloudy belt, clearly visible at the horizon, increased the gloom, and the eye could not discover if the sky and water were blended together in the same circular line. But at one point of the horizon a vague light suddenly appeared, which descended slowly in proportion as the cloud mounted to the zenith. It was the slender crescent moon, already almost disappearing, but its light was sufficient to show clearly the horizontal line, then detached from the cloud, and the engineer could see its reflection trembling for an instant on a liquid surface. Cyrus Harding seized the lad's hand, and in a grave voice, "'An island,' said he, at the moment when the lunar crescent disappeared beneath the waves. End of the chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 1, Chapter 11 Half an hour later Cyrus Harding and Herbert had returned to the encampment. The engineer merely told his companions that the land upon which fate had thrown them was an island, and that the next day they would consult. Then each settled himself as well as he could to sleep, and in that rocky hole, at a height of two thousand five hundred feet above the level of the sea, through a peaceful night, the islanders enjoyed profound repose. The next day, the 30th of March, after a hasty breakfast which consisted solely of the roasted tragopan, the engineer wished to climb again to the summit of the volcano, so as more attentively to survey the island upon which he and his companions were imprisoned, for life perhaps, should the island be situated at a great distance from any land, or if it was out of the course of vessels which visited the archipelagos of the Pacific Ocean. This time his companions followed him in the new exploration. They also wished to see the island, on the productions of which they must depend for the supply of all their wants. It was about seven o'clock in the morning when Cyrus Harding, Herbert, Pencroft, Gideon Spilett, and Neb quitted the encampment. No one appeared to be anxious about their situation. They had faith in themselves, doubtless, but it must be observed that the basis of this faith was not the same with Harding as with his companions. The engineer had confidence, because he felt capable of extorting from this wild country everything necessary for the life of himself and his companions. The latter feared nothing, just because Cyrus Harding was with them. Pencroft especially, since the incident of the relighted fire, would not have despaired for an instant, even if he was on a bare rock, if the engineer was with him on the rock. "'Pshaw!' said he. "'We left Richmond without permission from the authorities. It will be hard if we don't manage to get away some day or other from a place where certainly no one will detain us.' Cyrus Harding followed the same road as the evening before. They went round the cone by the plateau, which formed the shoulder, to the mouth of the enormous chasm. The weather was magnificent. 
the sun rose in a pure sky and flooded with his rays all the eastern side of the mountain. The crater was reached. It was just what the engineer had made it out to be in the dark, that is to say, a vast funnel which extended, widening, to a height of a thousand feet above the plateau. Below the chasm, large, thick streaks of lava wound over the sides of the mountain, and thus marked the course of the eruptive matter to the lower valleys which furrowed the northern part of the island. The interior of the crater, whose inclination did not exceed thirty-five to forty degrees, presented no difficulties nor obstacles to the ascent. Traces of very ancient lava were noticed, which probably had overflowed the summit of the cone, before this lateral chasm had opened a new way to it. As to the volcanic chimney which established a communication between the subterranean layers and the crater, its depth could not be calculated with the eye, for it was lost in obscurity. But there was no doubt as to the complete extinction of the volcano. Before eight o'clock Harding and his companions were assembled at the summit of the crater, on a conical mound which swelled the northern edge. "'The sea! The sea everywhere!' they cried as if their lips could not restrain the words which made islanders of them. The sea, indeed, formed an immense circular sheet of water all round them. Perhaps, on climbing again to the summit of the cone, Cyrus Harding had had a hope of discovering some coast, some island shore, which he had not been able to perceive in the dark the evening before. But nothing appeared on the farthest verge of the horizon that is to say, over a radius of more than fifty miles. No land in sight. Not a sail. Over all this immense space the ocean alone was visible. The island occupied the centre of a circumference which appeared to be infinite. The engineer and his companions, mute and motionless, surveyed for some minutes every point of the ocean, examining it to its most extreme limits. Even Pencroft, who possessed a marvellous power of sight, saw nothing. And certainly if there had been land at the horizon, if it appeared only as an indistinct vapour, the sailor would undoubtedly have found it out, for nature had placed regular telescopes under his eyebrows. From the ocean their gaze returned to the island which they commanded entirely, and the first question was put by Gideon Spillett in these terms. About what size is this island? Truly it did not appear large in the midst of the immense ocean. Cyrus Harding reflected a few minutes. He attentively observed the perimeter of the island, taking into consideration the height at which he was placed, then, My friends, said he, I do not think I am mistaken in giving to the shore of the island a circumference of more than a hundred miles. And consequently an area? that is difficult to estimate replied the engineer for it is so uneven if cyrus harding was not mistaken in his calculation the island had almost the extent of malta or zante in the mediterranean but it was at the same time much more irregular and less rich in capes promontories points bays or creeks its strange form caught the eye and when gideon spillett on the engineer's advice, had drawn the outline, they found that it resembled some fantastic animal, a monstrous leviathan, which lay sleeping on the surface of the Pacific. 
This was, in fact, the exact shape of the island, which it is of consequence to know, and a tolerably correct map of it was immediately drawn by the reporter. The east part of the shore, where the castaways had landed, formed a wide bay, terminated by a sharp cape, which had been concealed by a high point from Pencroft on his first exploration. At the northeast two other capes closed the bay, and between them ran a narrow gulf, which looked like the half-open jaws of a formidable dogfish. From the northeast to the southwest the coast was rounded, like the flattened cranium of an animal, rising again, forming a sort of protuberance which did not give any particular shape to this part of the island, of which the centre was occupied by the volcano. From this point the shore ran pretty regularly north and south, broken at two-thirds of its perimeter by a narrow creek, from which it ended in a long tail, similar to the caudal appendage of a gigantic alligator. This tail formed a regular peninsula, which stretched more than thirty miles into the sea. Reckoning from the cape southeast of the island, already mentioned, it curled round, making an open roadstead, which marked out the lower shore on this strangely formed land. At the narrowest part, that is to say, between the chimneys and the creek on the western shore, which corresponded to it in latitude, the island only measured ten miles but its greatest length, from the jaws at the northeast to the extremity of the tail at the southwest, was not less than thirty miles. As to the interior of the island, its general aspect was this, very woody throughout the southern part from the mountain to the shore, and arid and sandy in the northern part. Between the volcano and the east coast, Cyrus Harding and his companions were surprised to see a lake bordered with green trees, the existence of which they had not suspected. Seen from this height, the lake appeared to be on the same level as the ocean, but, on reflection, the engineer explained to his companions that the altitude of this little sheet of water must be about three hundred feet, because the plateau which was its basin was but a prolongation of the coast. "'Is it a fresh-water lake?' asked Pencroft. "'Certainly,' replied the engineer, "'for it must be fed by the water which flows from the mountain.' "'I see a little river which runs into it,' said Herbert, pointing out a narrow stream, which evidently took its source somewhere in the west. "'Yes,' said Harding, "'and since this stream feeds the lake, most probably on the side near the sea, there is an outlet by which the surplus water escapes. We shall see that on our return.' This little winding watercourse, and the river already mentioned, constituted the water-system, at least such as it was displayed to the eyes of the explorers. However, it was possible that under the masses of trees which covered two-thirds of the island, forming an immense forest, other rivers ran towards the sea. It might even be inferred that such was the case. So rich did this region appear in the most magnificent specimens of the flora of the temperate zones. There was no indication of running water in the north, though perhaps there might be stagnant water among the marshes in the northeast, but that was all, in addition to the downs, sand, and aridity which contrasted so strongly with the luxuriant vegetation of the rest of the island. The volcano did not 
occupy the central part, it rose, on the contrary, in the northwestern region, and seemed to mark the boundary of the two zones. At the southwest, at the south, and the southeast, the first part of the spurs were hidden under masses of verdure. At the north, on the contrary, one could follow their ramifications, which died away on the sandy plains. It was on this side that, at the time when the mountain was in a state of eruption, the discharge had worn away a passage, and a large heap of lava had spread to the narrow jaw which formed the northeastern gulf. Cyrus Harding and his companions remained an hour at the top of the mountain. The island was displayed under their eyes, like a plan in relief with different tints, green for the forests, yellow for the sand, blue for the water. They viewed it in its tout ensemble. Nothing remained concealed but the ground hidden by verdure, the hollows of the valleys, and the interior of the volcanic chasms. One important question remained to be solved, and the answer would have a great effect upon the future of the castaways. Was the island inhabited? It was the reporter who put this question, to which, after the close examination they had just made, the answer seemed to be in the negative. Nowhere could the work of a human hand be perceived. Not a group of huts, not a solitary cabin, not a fishery on the shore. No smoke curling in the air betrayed the presence of man. It is true a distance of nearly thirty miles separated the observers from the extreme points, that is, of the tail which extended to the southwest, and it would have been difficult, even to Pencroft's eyes, to discover a habitation there. Neither could the curtain of verdure, which covered three-quarters of the island, be raised to see if it did not shelter some straggling village. But in general the islanders live on the shores of the narrow spaces which emerge above the waters of the Pacific, and this shore appeared to be an absolute desert. Until a more complete exploration it might be admitted that the island was uninhabited. But was it frequented, at least occasionally, by the natives of neighboring islands? It was difficult to reply to this question. No land appeared within a radius of fifty miles. But fifty miles could be easily crossed, either by Malay proas or by the large Polynesian canoes. Everything depended on the position of the island, of its isolation in the Pacific, or of its proximity to archipelagos. Would Cyrus Harding be able to find out their latitude and longitude without instruments? It would be difficult. Since he was in doubt, it was best to take precautions against a possible descent of neighboring natives. The exploration of the island was finished, its shape determined, its features made out, its extent calculated, the water and mountain systems ascertained. The disposition of the forests and plains had been marked in a general way on the reporter's plan. They had now only to descend the mountain slopes again, and explore the soil in the triple point of view of its mineral, vegetable, and animal resources. But before giving his companions the signal for departure, Cyrus Harding said to them in a calm, grave voice, Here, my friends, is the small corner of land upon which the hand of the Almighty has thrown us. We are going to live here, a long time, perhaps. Perhaps, too, unexpected help will arrive, 
if some ship passes by chance. I say by chance because this is an unimportant island, there's not even a port in which ships could anchor, and it is to be feared that it is situated out of the route usually followed, that is to say, too much to the south for the ships which frequent the archipelagos of the Pacific, and too much to the north for those which go to Australia by doubling Cape Horn. I wish to hide nothing of our position from you. "'And you are right, my dear Cyrus,' replied the reporter, with animation. "'You have to deal with men. They have confidence in you, and you can depend upon them. Is it not so, my friends?' "'I will obey you in everything, Captain,' said Herbert, seizing the engineer's hand. "'My master always, and everywhere!' cried Neb. "'As for me,' said the sailor, "'if I ever grumble at work, my name's not Jack Pencroft. And if you like, Captain, we will make a little America of this island. We will build towns, we will establish railways, start telegraphs, and one fine day, when it is quite changed, quite put in order and quite civilized, we will go and offer it to the government of the Union. Only I ask one thing." "'What is that?' said the reporter. "'It is that we do not consider ourselves castaways, but colonists, who have come here to settle.' Harding could not help smiling, and the sailor's idea was adopted. He then thanked his companions, and added, that he would rely on their energy and on the aid of heaven. "'Well, now let us set off to the chimneys,' cried Pencroft. "'One minute, my friends,' said the engineer. "'It seems to me it would be a good thing to give a name to this island, as well as to the capes, promontories, and watercourses which we can see.' "'Very good,' said the reporter. "'In the future that will simplify the instructions which we have to give and follow.' "'Indeed,' said the sailor. Already it is something to be able to say where one is going, and where one has come from. At least it looks like somewhere." "'The chimneys, for example,' said Herbert. "'Exactly,' replied Pencroft. "'That name was the most convenient, and it came to me quite of itself. Shall we keep the name of the chimneys for our first encampment, Captain?' "'Yes, Pencroft, since you have so christened it.' "'Good. As for the others, that will be easy.' returned the sailor, who was in high spirits. Let us give them names as the Robinsons did, whose story Herbert has often read to me. Providence Bay, Whale Point, Cape Disappointment. Or rather the names of Captain Harding, said Herbert, of Mr. Spilett, of Neb. My name, cried Neb, showing his sparkling white teeth. Why not? replied Pencroft. Port Neb. That would do very well. And Cape Gideon. I should prefer borrowing names from our country, said the reporter, which would remind us of America. Yes, for the principal ones, then said Cyrus Harding. For those of the bays and seas I admit it willingly. We might give to that vast bay on the east the name of Union Bay, for example. To that large hollow on the south, Washington Bay to the mountain upon which we are standing, that of Mount Franklin, to that lake which is extended under our eyes, that of Lake Grant. Nothing could be better, my friends. These names will recall our country and those of the great citizens who have honoured it. 
but for the rivers, gulfs, capes, and promontories, which we perceive from the top of this mountain, rather let us choose names which will recall their particular shape. They will impress themselves better on our memory, and at the same time will be more practical. The shape of the island is so strange that we shall not be troubled to imagine what it resembles. As to the streams which we do not know as yet, in different parts of the forest which we shall explore later, the creeks which afterwards will be discovered, we can christen them as we find them. What do you think, my friends? The engineer's proposal was unanimously agreed to by his companions. The island was spread out under their eyes like a map, and they had only to give names to all its angles and points. Gideon Spilett would write them down, and the geographical nomenclature of the island would be definitely adopted. First they named the two bays and the mountain Union Bay, Washington Bay, and Mount Franklin, as the engineer had suggested. Now, said the reporter, to this peninsula at the southwest of the island, I propose to give the name of Serpentine Peninsula, and that of Reptile End, to the bent tail which terminates it, for it is just like a reptile's tail. Adopted, said the engineer. Now, said Herbert, pointing to the other extremity of the island, let us call this gulf which is so singularly like a pair of open jaws, Shark Gulf. Capital! cried Pencroft. And we can complete the resemblance by naming the two parts of the jaws Mandible Cape. But there are two capes, observed the reporter. Well, replied Pencroft, we can have North Mandible Cape and South Mandible Cape. They are inscribed, said Spilett. There is only the point at the southeastern extremity of the island to be named, said Pencroft. That is the extremity of Union Bay? asked Herbert. Claw Cape! cried Neb directly, who also wished to be godfather to some part of his domain. In truth, Neb had found an excellent name, for this cape was very like the powerful claw of the fantastic animal which this singularly shaped island represented. Pencroft was delighted at the turn things had taken, and their imaginations soon gave to the river which furnished the settlers with drinking water, and near which the balloon had thrown them, the name of the Mercy, in true gratitude to Providence. To the islet, upon which the castaways had first landed, the name of Safety Island. To the plateau which crowned the high granite precipice above the chimneys, and from whence the gaze could embrace the whole of the vast bay, the name of Prospect Heights. Lastly, all the masses of impenetrable wood which covered the Serpentine Peninsula were named the Forests of the Far West. The nomenclature of the visible and known parts of the island was thus finished, and later they would complete it as they made fresh discoveries. As to the points of the compass, the engineer had roughly fixed them by the height and position of the sun, which placed Union Bay and Prospect Heights to the east. But the next day, by taking the exact hour of the rising and setting of the sun, and by marking its position between this rising and setting, he reckoned to fix the north of the island exactly, for, in consequence of its situation in the southern hemisphere, the sun, at the precise moment of its culmination, passed in the north and not in the south, as, in its apparent movement, it seems to do, to those places situated in the northern hemisphere. Everything was finished, 
and the settlers had only to descend Mount Franklin to return to the chimneys, when Pencroft cried out, "'Well, we are preciously stupid!' "'Why?' asked Gideon Spilett, who had closed his notebook and risen to depart. "'Why, our island! We have forgotten to christen it!' Herbert was going to propose to give it the engineer's name, and all his companions would have applauded him, when Cyrus Harding said simply, "'Let us give it the name of a great citizen, my friends, of him who now struggles to defend the unity of the American Republic. Let us call it Lincoln Island.' The engineer's proposal was replied to by three hurrahs. And that evening, before sleeping, the new colonists talked of their absent country. They spoke of the terrible war which stained it with blood. They could not doubt that the South would soon be subdued, and that the cause of the North, the cause of justice, would triumph, thanks to Grant, thanks to Lincoln. Now this happened the 30th of March, 1865. They little knew that sixteen days afterwards a frightful crime would be committed in Washington, and that on Good Friday Abraham Lincoln would fall by the hand of a fanatic. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Twelve. They now began the descent of the mountain. Climbing down the crater, they went round the cone and reached their encampment of the previous night. Pencroft thought it must be breakfast-time, and the watches of the reporter and engineer were therefore consulted to find out the hour. That of Gideon Spilett had been preserved from the sea-water, as he had been thrown at once on the sand out of reach of the waves. It was an instrument of excellent quality, a perfect pocket-chronometer, which the reporter had not forgotten to wind up carefully every day. As to the engineer's watch, it, of course, had stopped during the time which he had passed on the downs. The engineer now wound it up, and, ascertaining by the height of the sun that it must be about nine o'clock in the morning, he put his watch at that hour. "'No, my dear Spilett, wait. You have kept the Richmond time, have you not?' "'Yes, Cyrus. Consequently, your watch is set by the meridian of that town, which is almost that of Washington?' Undoubtedly. Very well, keep it thus. Content yourself with winding it up very exactly, but do not touch the hands. This may be of use to us. What will be the good of that? thought the sailor. They ate, and so heartily, that the store of game and almonds was totally exhausted. But Pencroft was not at all uneasy. They would supply themselves on the way. Top, whose share had been very much to his taste, would know how to find some fresh game among the brushwood. Moreover, the sailor thought of simply asking the engineer to manufacture some powder and one or two fowling pieces. He supposed there would be no difficulty in that. On leaving the plateau, the captain proposed to his companions to return to the chimneys by a new way. He wished to reconnoitre Lake Grant, so magnificently framed in trees. They therefore followed the crest of one of the spurs, between which the creek that supplied the lake probably had its source. 
In talking, the settlers already employed the names which they had just chosen, which singularly facilitated the exchange of their ideas. Herbert and Pencroft, the one young and the other very boyish, were enchanted, and while walking the sailor said, "'Hey, Herbert, how capital it sounds! It will be impossible to lose ourselves, my boy, since whether we follow the way to Lake Grant, or whether we join the Mercy through the woods of the far west, we shall be certain to arrive at Prospect Heights, and consequently at Union Bay.' It had been agreed that without forming a compact band the settlers should not stray away from each other. It was very certain that the thick forests of the island were inhabited by dangerous animals, and it was prudent to be on their guard. In general, Pencroft, Herbert, and Neb walked first, preceded by Top, who poked his nose into every bush. The reporter and the engineer went together, Gideon Spilett ready to note every incident, the engineer silent for the most part, and only stepping aside to pick up, one thing or another, a mineral or vegetable substance, which he put into his pocket without making any remark. "'What can he be picking up?' muttered Pencroft. "'I have looked in vain for anything that's worth the trouble of stooping for.' Towards ten o'clock the little band descended the last declivities of Mount Franklin. As yet the ground was scantily strewn with bushes and trees. They were walking over yellowish calcinated earth, forming a plain of nearly a mile long, which extended to the edge of the wood. Great blocks of that basalt, which, according to Bischoff, takes three hundred and fifty millions of years to cool, strewed the plain, very confused in some places. However, there were here no traces of lava, which was spread more particularly over the northern slopes. Cyrus Harding expected to reach, without incident, the course of the creek, which he supposed flowed under the trees at the border of the plain, when he saw Herbert running hastily back, while Neb and the sailor were hiding behind the rocks. "'What's the matter, my boy?' asked Spilett. "'Smoke!' replied Herbert. "'We have seen smoke among the rocks, a hundred paces from us.' "'Men in this place!' cried the reporter. "'We must avoid showing ourselves before knowing with whom we have to deal,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'I trust that there are no natives on this island. I dread them more than anything else. Where is Top?' "'Top is on before.' "'And he doesn't bark?' "'No.' "'That is strange. However, we must try to call him back.' In a few moments the engineer, Gideon Spilett, and Herbert had rejoined their two companions and like them they kept out of sight behind the heaps of basalt. From thence they clearly saw smoke of a yellowish color rising in the air. Top was recalled by a slight whistle from his master, and the latter, signing to his companions to wait for him, glided away among the rocks. The colonists, motionless, anxiously awaited the results of this exploration, when a shout from the engineer made them hasten forward. They soon joined him, and were at once struck with a disagreeable odour which impregnated the atmosphere. The odour, easily recognised, was enough for the engineer to guess what the smoke was which at first, not without cause, had startled him. "'This fire,' said he, "'or rather this smoke is produced by nature alone. There is a sulphur spring there, which will cure all our sore throats.' "'Captain!' 
cried Pencroft. What a pity that I haven't got a cold! The settlers then directed their steps toward the place from which the smoke escaped. They there saw a sulphur spring which flowed abundantly between the rocks, and its waters discharged a strong sulphuric acid odor, after having absorbed the oxygen of the air. Cyrus Harding, dipping in his hand, felt the water oily to the touch. He tasted it, and found it rather sweet. As to its temperature, that he estimated at ninety-five degrees Fahrenheit. Herbert having asked on what he based this calculation, "'It's quite simple, my boy,' said he, "'for, in plunging my hand into the water, I felt no sensation either of heat or cold. Therefore it has the same temperature as the human body, which is about ninety-five degrees.' The sulphur spring, not being of any actual use to the settlers, they proceeded towards the thick border of the forest, which began some hundred paces off. There, as they had conjectured, the waters of the stream flowed clear and limpid between high banks of red earth, the colour of which betrayed the presence of oxide of iron. From this colour the name of Red Creek was immediately given to the watercourse. It was only a large stream, deep and clear, formed of the mountain water, which, half river, half torrent, here rippling peacefully over the sand, there chafing against the rocks or dashing down in a cascade, ran towards the lake, over a distance of a mile and a half, its breadth varying from thirty to forty feet. Its waters were sweet, and it was supposed that those of the lake were so also. A fortunate circumstance, in the event of their finding on its borders a more suitable dwelling than the chimneys. As to the trees, which some hundred feet downwards shaded the banks of the creek, they belonged, for the most part, to the species which abound in the temperate zone of America and Tasmania, and no longer to those coniferae observed in that portion of the island already explored to some miles from Prospect Heights. At this time of the year, the commencement of the month of April, which represents the month of October in this hemisphere, that is, the beginning of autumn, they were still in full leaf. They consisted principally of casuarinas and eucalypti, some of which next year would yield a sweet manna, similar to the manna of the east. Clumps of Australian cedars rose on the sloping banks, which were also covered with a high grass called tussack in New Holland. But the coconut, so abundant in the archipelagos of the Pacific, seemed to be wanting in the island, the latitude doubtless being too low. "'What a pity!' said Herbert. "'Such a useful tree, and which is such beautiful nuts!' As to the birds, they swarmed among the scanty branches of the eucalypti and casuarinas, which did not hinder the display of their wings. Black, white, or grey cockatoos, parakeets, with plumage of all colours, kingfishers of a sparkling green and crowned with red, blue lorries, and various other birds appeared on all sides, as through a prism, fluttering about and producing a deafening clamour. Suddenly a strange concert of discordant voices resounded in the midst of a thicket. The settlers heard successfully the song of birds, the cry of quadrupeds, and a sort of clacking which they might have believed to have escaped from the lips of a native. 
Neb and Herbert rushed towards the bush, forgetting even the most elementary principles of prudence. Happily, they found there neither a formidable wild beast nor a dangerous native, but merely half a dozen mocking and singing birds, known as mountain pheasants. A few skilful blows from a stick soon put an end to their concert, and procured excellent food for the evening's dinner. Herbert also discovered some magnificent pigeons with bronzed wings, some superbly crested, some draped in green, like their congeners at Port Macquarie. But it was impossible to reach them, or the crows and magpies which flew away in flocks. A charge of small shot would have made great slaughter among these birds, but the hunters were still limited to sticks and stones, and these primitive weapons proved very insufficient. Their insufficiency was still more clearly shown when a troop of quadrupeds, jumping, bounding, making leaps of thirty feet, regular flying mammiferae, fled over the thickets so quickly and at such a height that one would have thought that they passed from one tree to another like squirrels. "'Kangaroos!' cried Herbert. "'Are they good to eat?' asked Pencroft. "'Stewed,' replied the reporter. "'Their flesh is equal to the best venison.' Gideon Spilett had not finished this exciting sentence, when the sailor, followed by Neb and Herbert, darted on the kangaroo's tracks. Cyrus Harding called them back in vain, but it was in vain, too, for the hunters to pursue such agile game, which went bounding away like balls. After a chase of five minutes they lost their breath, and at the same time all sight of the creatures, which disappeared in the wood. Top was not more successful than his masters. "'Captain,' said Pencroft, when the engineer and the reporter had rejoined them, "'Captain, you see quite well. We can't get on unless we make a few guns. Will that be possible?' "'Perhaps,' replied the engineer. "'But we will begin by first manufacturing some bows and arrows, and I don't doubt that you will become as clever in the use of them as the Australian hunters.' "'Bows and arrows?' said Pencroft scornfully. "'That's all very well for children.' "'Don't be proud, friend Pencroft,' replied the reporter. "'Bows and arrows were sufficient for centuries to stain the earth with blood. Powder is but a thing of yesterday, and war is as old as the human race, unhappily.' "'Faith, that's true, Mr. Spilett,' replied the sailor and I always speak too quickly. You must excuse me." Meanwhile Herbert, constant to his favorite science, natural history, reverted to the kangaroos, saying, "'Besides, we had to deal just now with the species which is most difficult to catch. They were giants with long gray fur, but if I am not mistaken, there exist black and red kangaroos, rock kangaroos, and rat kangaroos which are more easy to get hold of. It is reckoned that there are about a dozen species." "'Herbert,' replied the sailor sententiously, "'there is only one species of kangaroo to me. That is, kangaroo on the spit, and it's just the one we haven't got this evening.' They could not help laughing at Master Pencroft's new classification. The honest sailor did not hide his regret at being reduced for dinner to the singing pheasants but fortune once more showed itself obliging to him. 
In fact, Top, who felt that his interest was concerned, went and ferreted everywhere with an instinct doubled by a ferocious appetite. It was even probable that if some piece of game did fall into his clutches, none would be left for the hunters, if Top was hunting on his own account, but Neb watched him, and he did well. Towards three o'clock the dog disappeared in the brushwood, and gruntings showed that he was engaged in a struggle with some animal. Neb rushed after him, and soon saw Top eagerly devouring a quadruped, which ten seconds later would have been past recognizing in Top's stomach. But fortunately the dog had fallen upon a brood, and besides the victim he was devouring, two other rodents, the animals in question belonged to that order, lay strangled on the turf. Neb reappeared triumphantly holding one of the rodents in each hand. Their size exceeded that of a rabbit, their hair was yellow, mingled with green spots, and they had the merest rudiments of tails. The citizens of the Union were at no loss for the right name of these rodents. They were maras, a sort of agouti, a little larger than their congeners of tropical countries, regular American rabbits, with long ears, jaws armed on each side with five molars, which distinguished the agouti. Hurrah! cried Pencroft. The roast has arrived, and now we can go home. The walk, interrupted for an instant, was resumed. The limpid waters of the Red Creek flowed under an arch of cassuarinas, banksias, and gigantic gum trees. Superb lilacs rose to a height of twenty feet. Other aborescent species, unknown to the young naturalist, bent over the stream, which could be heard murmuring beneath the bowers of verdure. Meanwhile the stream grew much wider, and Cyrus Harding supposed that they would soon reach its mouth. In fact, on emerging from beneath a thick clump of beautiful trees, it suddenly appeared before their eyes. The explorers had arrived on the western shore of Lake Grant. The place was well worth looking at. This extent of water, of a circumference of nearly seven miles, and an area of two hundred and fifty acres, reposed in a border of diversified trees. Towards the east, through a curtain of verdure, picturesquely raised in some places, sparkled an horizon of sea. The lake was curved at the north, which contrasted with the sharp outline of its lower part. Numerous aquatic birds frequented the shores of this little Ontario, in which the thousand isles of its American namesake were represented by a rock which emerged from its surface some hundred feet from the southern shore. There lived in harmony several couples of kingfishers, perched on a stone, grave, motionless, watching for fish, then darting down, they plunged in with a sharp cry, and reappeared with their prey in their beaks. On the shores, and on the islets, strutted wild ducks, pelicans, water-hens, red-beaks, philodons, furnished with a tongue like a brush, and one or two specimens of the splendid manura, the tail of which expands gracefully like a lyre. As to the water of the lake, it was sweet, limpid, rather dark, and from certain bubblings, and the concentric circles which crossed each other on the surface, it could not be doubted that it abounded in fish. "'This lake is really beautiful,' said Gideon Spilett. "'We could live on its borders.' "'We will live there,' replied Harding. 
the settlers, wishing to return to the chimneys by the shortest way, descended towards the angle formed on the south by the junction of the lake's bank. It was not without difficulty that they broke a path through the thickets and brushwood which had never been put aside by the hand of man, and they thus went towards the shore, so as to arrive at the north of Prospect Heights. Two miles were cleared in this direction, and then, after they had passed the last curtain of trees, appeared the plateau, carpeted with thick turf, and beyond that, the infinite sea. To return to the chimneys, it was enough to cross the plateau obliquely for the space of a mile, and then to descend to the elbow formed by the first detour of the Mercy. But the engineer desired to know how and where the overplus of the water from the lake escaped, and the exploration was prolonged under the trees for a mile and a half towards the north. It was most probable that an overfall existed somewhere, and doubtless through a cleft in the granite. This lake was only, in short, an immense centre basin, which was filled by degrees by the creek, and its waters must necessarily pass to the sea by some fall. If it was so, the engineer thought that it might perhaps be possible to utilise this fall and borrow its power, actually lost without profit to anyone. They continued then to follow the shores of Lake Grant by climbing the plateau, but after having gone a mile in this direction, Cyrus Harding had not been able to discover the overfall, which, however, must exist somewhere. It was then half-past four. In order to prepare for dinner it was necessary that the settlers should return to their dwelling. The little band retraced their steps, therefore, and by the left bank of the Mercy Cyrus Harding and his companions arrived at the chimneys. The fire was lighted, and Neb and Pencroft, on whom the functions of cooks naturally devolved, to the one in his quality of negro, to the other in that of sailor, quickly prepared some broiled agouti, to which they did great justice. The repast at length terminated. At the moment when each one was about to give himself up to sleep, Cyrus Harding drew from his pocket little specimens of different sorts of minerals, and just said, My friends, this is iron mineral, this a pyrite, this is clay, this is lime, and this is coal. Nature gives us these things. It is our business to make a right use of them. To-morrow we will commence operations. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part One, Chapter Thirteen "'Well, Captain, where are we going to begin?' asked Pencroft next morning of the engineer. "'At the beginning,' replied Cyrus Harding. And, in fact, the settlers were compelled to begin at the very beginning. They did not possess even the tools necessary for making tools, and they were not even in the condition of nature, who, having time, husbands her strength. They had no time, since they had to provide for the immediate wants of their existence, 
and though, profiting by acquired experience, they had nothing to invent, still they had everything to make. Their iron and their steel were as yet only in the state of minerals, their earthenware in the state of clay, their linen and their clothes in the state of textile material. It must be said, however, that the settlers were men in the complete and higher sense of the word. The engineer Harding could not have been seconded by more intelligent companions, nor with more devotion and zeal. He had tried them, he knew their abilities. Gideon Spillett, a talented reporter, having learned everything so as to be able to speak of everything, would contribute largely with his head and hands to the colonization of the island. He would not draw back from any task. A determined sportsman, he would make a business of what till then had only been a pleasure to him. Herbert, a gallant boy, already remarkably well informed in the natural sciences, would render greater service to the common cause. Neb was devotion personified, clever, intelligent, indefatigable, robust, with iron health. He knew a little about the work of the forge, and could not fail to be very useful in the colony. As to Pencroft, he had sailed over every sea, a carpenter in the dockyards in Brooklyn, assistant tailor in the vessels of the state, gardener, cultivator during his holidays, etc., and, like all seamen, fit for anything, he knew how to do everything. It would have been difficult to unite five men better fitted to struggle against fate, more certain to triumph over it. At the beginning, Cyrus Harding had said, now this beginning of which the engineer spoke was the construction of an apparatus which would serve to transform the natural substances. The part which heat plays in these transformations is known. Now fuel, wood or coal, was ready for immediate use, and an oven must be built to use it. "'What is this oven for?' asked Pencroft. "'To make the pottery which we have need of,' replied Harding." and of what shall we make the oven with bricks and the bricks with clay let us start my friends to save trouble we will establish our manufactory at the place of production neb will bring provisions and there will be no lack of fire to cook the food no replied the reporter but if there is a lack of food for want of instruments for the chase ah if only we had a knife cried the sailor well asked Cyrus Harding. "'Well, I would soon make a bow and arrows, and then there would be plenty of game in the larder.' "'Yes, a knife, a sharp blade,' said the engineer, as if he was speaking to himself. At this moment his eyes fell upon Top, who was running about on the shore. Suddenly Harding's face became animated. "'Top, here!' said he. The dog came at his master's call. The latter took Top's head between his hands, and unfastening the collar which the animal wore round his neck, he broke it in two, saying, "'There are two knives, Pencroft.' Two hurrahs from the sailor was the reply. Top's collar was made of a thin piece of tempered steel. They had only to sharpen it on a piece of sandstone, then to raise the edge on a finer stone. Now sandstone was abundant on the beach and two hours after the stock of tools in the colony consisted of two sharp blades which were easily fixed in solid handles. The production of these their first tools was hailed as a triumph. 
It was indeed a valuable result of their labor, and a very opportune one. They set out. Cyrus Harding proposed that they should return to the western shore of the lake, where the day before he had noticed the clayey ground of which he possessed a specimen. They therefore followed the bank of the Mercy, traversed Prospect Heights, and after a walk of five miles or more they reached a glade situated two hundred feet from Lake Grant. On the way Herbert had discovered a tree, the branches of which the Indians of South America employ for making their bows. It was the Krijimba, of the palm family, which does not bear edible fruit. Long straight branches were cut, the leaves stripped off, it was shaped, stronger in the middle, more slender at the extremities, and nothing remained to be done but to find a plant fit to make the bowstring. This was the hibiscus heterophilus, which furnishes fibres of such remarkable tenacity that they have been compared to the tendons of animals. Pencroft thus obtained bows of tolerable strength, for which he only wanted arrows. These were easily made with straight, stiff branches, without knots, but the points with which they must be armed, that is to say, a substance to serve in lieu of iron, could not be met with so easily. But Pencroft said that having done his part of the work, chance would do the rest. The settlers arrived on the ground which had been discovered the day before. Being composed of the sort of clay which is used for making bricks and tiles, it was very useful for the work in question. There was no great difficulty in it. It was enough to scour the clay with sand, then to mould the bricks and bake them by the heat of a wood fire. Generally bricks are formed in moulds, but the engineer contented himself with making them by hand. All that day, and the day following, were employed in this work. The clay, soaked in water, was mixed by the feet and hands of the manipulators, and then divided into pieces of equal size. A practiced workman can make, without a machine, about ten thousand bricks in twelve hours, but in their two days' work the five brickmakers on Lincoln Island had not made more than three thousand, which were ranged near each other until the time when their complete desiccation would permit them to be used in building the oven that is to say, in three or four days. It was on the 2nd of April that Harding had employed himself in fixing the orientation of the island, or, in other words, the precise spot where the sun rose. The day before he had noted exactly the hour when the sun disappeared beneath the horizon, making allowance for the refraction. This morning he noted, no less exactly, the hour at which it reappeared. Between this setting and rising, twelve hours, twenty-four minutes passed. Then, six hours, twelve minutes after its rising, the sun on this day would exactly pass the meridian, and the point of the sky which it occupied at this moment would be the north. At the set hour, Cyrus marked this point, and putting in a line with the sun two trees which would serve him for marks, he thus obtained an invariable meridian for his ulterior operations. The settlers employed the two days before the oven was built, in collecting fuel. Branches were cut all round the glade, and they picked up all the fallen wood under the trees. They were also able to hunt with greater success, since Pencroft now possessed some dozen arrows armed with sharp points. It was Top who had furnished these points by bringing in a porcupine, 
rather inferior eating, but of great value, thanks to the quills with which it bristled. These quills were fixed firmly at the ends of the arrows, the flight of which was made more certain by some cockatoo's feathers. The reporter and Herbert soon became very skilful archers. Game of all sorts, in consequence, abounded at the chimneys, capybaras, pigeons, agutis, grouse, etc. The greater part of these animals were killed in the part of the forest on the left bank of the Mercy, to which they gave the name of Jacamar Wood, in remembrance of the bird which Pencroft and Herbert had pursued when on their first exploration. This game was eaten fresh, but they preserved some capybara hams by smoking them above a fire of green wood, after having perfumed them with sweet-smelling leaves. However, this food, although very strengthening, was always roast upon roast, and the party would have been delighted to hear some soup bubbling on the hearth, but they must wait till a pot could be made, and consequently till the oven was built. During these excursions, which were not extended far from the brickfield, the hunters could discern the recent passage of animals of a large size, armed with powerful claws, but they could not recognize the species. Cyrus Harding advised them to be very careful, as the forest probably enclosed many dangerous beasts. And he did right. Indeed, Gideon Spilett and Herbert one day saw an animal which resembled a jaguar. Happily the creature did not attack them, or they might not have escaped without a severe wound. As soon as he could get a regular weapon, that is to say, one of the guns which Pencroft begged for, Gideon Spilett resolved to make desperate war against the ferocious beasts, and exterminate them from the island. The chimneys during these few days were not made more comfortable, for the engineer hoped to discover, or build if necessary, a more convenient dwelling. They contented themselves with spreading moss and dry leaves on the sand of the passages, and on these primitive couches the tired workers slept soundly. They also reckoned the days they had passed on Lincoln Island, and from that time kept a regular account. The 5th of April, which was Wednesday, was twelve days from the time when the wind threw the castaways on this shore. On the 6th of April, at daybreak, the engineer and his companions were collected in the glade, at the place where they were going to perform the operation of baking the bricks. Naturally this had to be in the open air and not in a kiln, or rather the agglomeration of bricks made an enormous kiln which would bake itself. The fuel, made of well-prepared faggots, was laid on the ground and surrounded with several rows of dried bricks, which soon formed an enormous cube, to the exterior of which they contrived air-holes. The work lasted all day, and it was not till the evening that they set fire to the faggots. No one slept that night all watching carefully to keep up the fire. The operation lasted forty-eight hours, and succeeded perfectly. It then became necessary to leave the smoking mass to cool, and during this time Neb and Pencroft, guided by Cyrus Harding, brought, on a hurdle made of interlaced branches, loads of carbonate of lime and common stones, which were very abundant, to the north of the lake. These stones, when decomposed by heat, made a very strong quicklime, greatly increased by slacking, at least as pure as if it had been produced by the calcination of chalk or marble. 
mixed with sand, the lime made excellent mortar. The result of these different works was that on the ninth of April the engineer had at his disposal a quantity of prepared lime and some thousands of bricks. Without losing an instant, therefore, they began the construction of a kiln to bake the pottery, which was indispensable for their domestic use. They succeeded without much difficulty. Five days after, the kiln was supplied with coal, which the engineer had discovered lying open to the sky towards the mouth of the Red Creek, and the first smoke escaped from a chimney twenty feet high. The glade was transformed into a manufactory, and Pencroft was not far wrong in believing that from this kiln would issue all the products of modern industry. In the meantime, what the settlers first manufactured was a common pottery in which to cook their food. The chief material was clay, to which Harding added a little lime and quartz. This paste made regular pipe clay, with which they manufactured bowls, cups molded on stones of a proper size, great jars, and pots to hold water, etc. The shape of these objects was clumsy and defective, but after they had been baked at a high temperature, the kitchen of the chimneys was provided with a number of utensils, as precious to the settlers as the most beautifully enameled china. We must mention here that Pencroft, desirous to know if the clay thus prepared was worthy of its name of pipe-clay, made some large pipes, which he thought charming, but for which, alas, he had no tobacco, and that was a great privation to Pencroft. "'But tobacco will come like everything else,' he repeated, in a burst of absolute confidence. This work lasted till the 15th of April, and the time was well employed. The settlers, having become potters, made nothing but pottery. When it suited Cyrus Harding to change them into smiths, they would become smiths. But the next day being Sunday, and also Easter Sunday, all agreed to sanctify the day by rest. These Americans were religious men, scrupulous observers of the precepts of the Bible, and their situation could not but develop sentiments of confidence towards the author of all things. On the evening of the 15th of April they returned to the chimneys, carrying with them the pottery, the furnace being extinguished until they could put it to a new use. Their return was marked by a fortunate incident. The engineer discovered a substance which replaced tinder. It is known that a spongy, velvety flesh is procured from a certain mushroom of the genus Polyphorus. Properly prepared, it is extremely inflammable especially when it has previously been saturated with gunpowder or boiled in a solution of nitrate or chlorate of potash. But till then they had not found any of these polypores, or even any of the morels which could replace them. On this day the engineer, seeing a plant belonging to the wormwood genus, the principal species of which are absinthe, balm mint, tarragon, etc., gathered several tufts, and presenting them to the sailor, said, Here, Pencroft, this will please you. Pencroft looked attentively at the plant, covered with long silky hair, the leaves being clothed with soft down. What's that, Captain? asked Pencroft. Is it tobacco? No, replied Harding. It is wormwood. Chinese wormwood to the learned, but to us 
It will be tinder. When the wormwood was properly dried, it provided them with a very inflammable substance, especially afterwards when the engineer had impregnated it with nitrate of potash, of which the island possessed several beds, and which is, in truth, saltpetre. The colonists had a good supper that evening. Neb prepared some agouti soup, a smoked capybara ham, to which was added the boiled tubercules of the caladium mycorrhizum, an herbaceous plant of the arum family. They had an excellent taste, and were very nutritious, being something similar to the substance which is sold in England under the name of Portland Sago. They were also a good substitute for bread, which the settlers in Lincoln Island did not yet possess. When supper was finished, before sleeping, Harding and his companions went to take the air on the beach. It was eight o'clock in the evening. The night was magnificent. The moon, which had been full five days before, had not yet risen, but the horizon was already silvered by those soft, pale shades which might be called the dawn of the moon. At the southern zenith glittered the circumpolar constellations, and above all the southern cross, which some days before the engineer had greeted on the summit of Mount Franklin. Cyrus Harding gazed for some time at this splendid constellation, which has at its summit and at its base two stars of the first magnitude, at its left arm a star of the second, and at its right arm a star of the third magnitude. Then, after some minutes' thought, Herbert, he asked of the lad, is not this the 15th of April? Yes, Captain, replied Herbert. Well, if I am not mistaken, to-morrow will be one of the four days in the year in which the real time is identical with average time. That is to say, my boy, that to-morrow, to within some seconds, the sun will pass the meridian just at midday by the clocks. If the weather is fine, I think that I shall obtain the longitude of the island with an approximation of some degrees. "'Without instruments? Without a sextant?' asked Gideon Spillet. "'Yes,' replied the engineer. "'Also, since the night is clear, I will try this very evening to obtain our latitude by calculating the height of the Southern Cross, that is, from the Southern Pole above the horizon. You understand, my friends, that before undertaking the work of installation in earnest it is not enough to have found out that this land is an island. We must, as nearly as possible, know at what distance it is situated, either from the American continent or Australia, or from the principal archipelagos of the Pacific. In fact, said the reporter, instead of building a house, it would be more important to build a boat, if by chance we are not more than a hundred miles from an inhabited coast. That is why, returned Harding, I am going to try this evening to calculate the latitude of Lincoln Island, and to-morrow at midday I will try to calculate the longitude. If the engineer had possessed a sextant, an apparatus with which the angular distance of objects can be measured with great precision, there would have been no difficulty in the operation. This evening by the height of the pole, the next day by the passing of the sun at the meridian, he would obtain the position of the island but as they had not won, he would have to supply the deficiency. Harding then entered the chimneys. 
By the light of the fire he cut two little flat rulers, which he joined together at one end, so as to form a pair of compasses, whose legs could separate or come together. The fastening was fixed with a strong acacia thorn which was found in the woodpile. This instrument finished, the engineer returned to the beach, but as it was necessary to take the height of the pole from above a clear horizon, that is, a sea horizon, and his claw cape hid the southern horizon, he was obliged to look for a more suitable station. The best would evidently have been the shore exposed directly to the south, but the mercy would have to be crossed, and that was a difficulty. Harding resolved, in consequence, to make his observation from Prospect Heights, taking into consideration its height above the level of the sea, a height which he intended to calculate next day by a simple process of elementary geometry. The settlers, therefore, went to the plateau, ascending the left bank of the Mercy, and placed themselves on the edge which looked northwest and southeast, that is, above the curiously shaped rocks which bordered the river. This part of the plateau commanded the heights of the left bank, which sloped away to the extremity of Claw Cape and to the southern side of the island. No obstacle intercepted their gaze, which swept the horizon in a semicircle from the cape to reptile end. To the south the horizon, lighted by the first rays of the moon, was very clearly defined against the sky. At this moment the southern cross presented itself to the observer in an inverted position, the star Alpha marking its base, which is nearer to the southern pole. This constellation is not situated as near to the Antarctic pole as the polar star is to the Arctic pole. The star Alpha is about twenty-seven degrees from it, but Cyrus Harding knew this and made allowance for it in his calculation. He then took care also to observe the moment when it passed the meridian below the pole, which would simplify the operation. Cyrus Harding pointed one leg of the compasses to the horizon, the other to Alpha, and the space between the two legs gave him the angular distance which separated Alpha from the horizon. In order to fix the angle obtained, he fastened with thorns the two pieces of wood on a third placed transversely so that their separation should be properly maintained. That done, there was only the angle to calculate by bringing back the observation to the level of the sea, taking into consideration the depression of the horizon, which would necessitate measuring the height of the cliff. The value of this angle would give the height of alpha, and consequently that of the pole above the horizon, that is to say, the latitude of the island, since the latitude of a point of the globe is always equal to the height of the pole above the horizon of this point. The calculations were left for the next day, and at ten o'clock every one was sleeping soundly. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 1. Chapter 14. 
The next day, the 16th of April, and Easter Sunday, the settlers issued from the chimneys at daybreak, and proceeded to wash their linen. The engineer intended to manufacture soap as soon as he could procure the necessary materials, soda or potash, fat or oil. The important question of renewing their wardrobe would be treated of in the proper time and place. At any rate, their clothes would last at least six months longer, for they were strong, and could resist the wear of manual labour. But all would depend on the situation of the island with regard to inhabited land. This would be settled to-day, if the weather permitted. The sun rising above a clear horizon announced a magnificent day, one of those beautiful autumn days which are like the last farewells of the warm season. It was now necessary to complete the observations of the evening before, by measuring the height of the cliff above the level of the sea. "'Shall you not need an instrument similar to the one which you used yesterday?' said Herbert to the engineer. "'No, my boy,' replied the latter. "'We are going to proceed differently, but in as precise a way.' Herbert, wishing to learn everything he could, followed the engineer to the beach. Pencroft, Neb, and the reporter remained behind and occupied themselves in different ways. Cyrus Harding had provided himself with a straight stick, twelve feet long, which he had measured as exactly as possible by comparing it with his own height, which he knew to a hair. Herbert carried a plumb-line which Harding had given him, that is to say, a simple stone fastened to the end of a flexible fibre. Having reached a spot about twenty feet from the edge of the beach, and nearly five hundred feet from the cliff, which rose perpendicularly, Harding thrust the pole two feet into the sand, and wedging it up carefully, he managed, by means of the plumb-line, to erect it perpendicularly with the plane of the horizon. That done, he retired the necessary distance, when, lying on the sand, his eye glanced at the same time at the top of the pole and the crest of the cliff. He carefully marked the place with a little stick. Then, addressing Herbert, do you know the first principles of geometry? he asked. Slightly, Captain, replied Herbert, who did not wish to put himself forward. You remember what are the properties of two similar triangles? Yes, replied Herbert. Their homologous sides are proportional. Well, my boy, I have just constructed two similar right-angled triangles. The first, the smallest, has for its sides the perpendicular pole, the distance which separates the little stick from the foot of the pole, and my visual ray for hypotenuse. The second has for its sides the perpendicular cliff, the height of which we wish to measure, the distance which separates the little stick from the bottom of the cliff, and my visual ray also forms its hypotenuse, which proves to be prolongation of that of the first triangle. "'Ah, Captain, I understand,' cried Herbert. As the distance from the stick to the pole is to this distance from the stick to the base of the cliff, so was the height of the pole to the height of the cliff. Just so, Herbert, replied the engineer. And when we have measured the first two distances, knowing the height of the pole, we shall only have a sum in proportion to do, which will give us the height of the cliff, and will save us the trouble of measuring it directly. The two horizontal distances were found out by means of the pole, 
whose length above the sand was exactly ten feet. The first distance was fifteen feet between the stick and the place where the pole was thrust into the sand. The second distance between the stick and the bottom of the cliff was five hundred feet. These measurements finished, Cyrus Harding and the lad returned to the chimneys. The engineer then took a flat stone which he had brought back from one of his previous excursions, a sort of slate, on which it was easy to trace figures with a sharp shell. He then proved the following proportions. Fifteen is to five hundred, as ten is to x. Five hundred times ten equals five thousand. Five thousand divided by fifteen equals three 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 point three from which it was proved that the granite cliff measured three hundred and thirty-three feet in height. Cyrus Harding then took the instrument which he had made the evening before, the space between its two legs giving the angular distance between the star Alpha and the horizon. He measured, very exactly, the opening of this angle on a circumference which he divided into three hundred and sixty equal parts. Now this angle, by adding to it the twenty-seven degrees which separated Alpha from the Antarctic Pole, and by reducing to the level of the sea the height of the cliff on which the observation had been made, was found to be fifty-three degrees. These fifty-three degrees being subtracted from ninety degrees, the distance from the pole to the equator, there remained thirty-seven degrees. Cyrus Harding concluded, therefore, that Lincoln Island was situated on the thirty-seventh degree of the southern latitude, or taking into consideration through the imperfection of the performance an error of five degrees, that it must be situated between the thirty-fifth and the fortieth parallel. There was only the longitude to be obtained, and the position of the island would be determined. The engineer hoped to attempt this the same day at twelve o'clock, at which moment the sun would pass the meridian. It was decided that Sunday should be spent in a walk, or rather an exploring expedition, to that side of the island between the north of the lake and Shark Gulf, and if there was time they would push their discoveries to the northern side of Cape South Mandible. They would breakfast on the downs and not return till evening. At half-past eight the little band was following the edge of the channel. On the other side, on Safety Islet, numerous birds were gravely strutting. They were divers, easily recognized by their cry, which much resembles the braying of a donkey. Pencroft only considered them in an eatable point of view, and learnt with some satisfaction that their flesh, though blackish, is not bad food. Great amphibious creatures could also be seen crawling on the sand, seals, doubtless, who appeared to have chosen the islet for a place of refuge. It was impossible to think of those animals in an elementary point of view, for their oily flesh is detestable. However, Cyrus Harding observed them attentively, and without making known his idea, he announced to his companions that very soon they would pay a visit to the islet. The beach was strewn with innumerable shells, some of which would have rejoiced the heart of a conchologist. There were, among others, the Phasianella, the Terebratula, etc. But what would be of more use was the discovery, by Neb, at low tide, 
of a large oyster-bed among the rocks, nearly five miles from the chimneys. "'Neb will not have lost his day!' cried Pencroft, looking at the spacious oyster-bed. "'It is really a fortunate discovery,' said the reporter. And as it is said that each oyster produces yearly from fifty to sixty thousand eggs, we shall have an inexhaustible supply there. Only I believe that the oyster is not very nourishing, said Herbert. No, replied Harding, the oyster contains very little nitrogen, and if a man lived exclusively on them, he would have to eat not less than fifteen to sixteen dozen a day. Capital, replied Pencroft. We might swallow dozens and dozens without exhausting the bed. Shall we take some for breakfast? And without waiting for a reply to this proposal, knowing that it would be approved of, the sailor and Neb detached a quantity of the mollusks. They put them in a sort of net of hibiscus fibre, which Neb had manufactured, and which already contained food. They then continued to climb the coast between the downs and the sea. From time to time Harding consulted his watch, so as to be prepared in time for the solar observation, which had to be made exactly at midday. All that part of the island was very barren as far as the point which closed Union Bay, and which had received the name of Cape South Mandible. Nothing could be seen there but sand and shells, mingled with debris of lava. A few sea-birds frequented this desolate coast gulls, great albatrosses, as well as wild duck, for which Pencroft had a great fancy. He tried to knock some over with an arrow, but without result, for they seldom perched, and he could not hit them on the wing. This led the sailor to repeat to the engineer, "'You see, Captain, so long as we have not one or two fowling pieces, we shall never get anything.' "'Doubtless, Pencroft,' replied the reporter, "'but it depends on you.' Procure us some iron for the barrels, steel for the hammers, saltpetre, coal, and sulphur for powder, mercury and nitric acid for the fulminate, and lead for the shot, and the captain will make us first-rate guns. Oh, replied the engineer, we might no doubt find all these substances on the island, but a gun is a delicate instrument, and needs very particular tools. However, we shall see later. "'Why!' cried Pencroft, "'were we obliged to throw overboard all the weapons we had with us in the car, all our implements, even our pocket-knives?' "'But if we had not thrown them away, Pencroft, the balloon would have thrown us to the bottom of the sea,' said Herbert. "'What you say is true, my boy,' replied the sailor. Then, passing to another idea, "'Think,' said he, how astounded Jonathan Forster and his companions must have been when, next morning, they found the place empty and the machine flown away. "'I am utterly indifferent about knowing what they may have thought,' said the reporter. "'It was all my idea, that,' said Pencroft, with a satisfied air. "'A splendid idea, Pencroft,' replied Gideon Spilett, laughing, "'and which has placed us where we are.' I would rather be here than in the hands of the Southerners," cried the sailor, especially since the captain has been kind enough to come and join us again. So would I, truly, replied the reporter. Besides, what do we want? Nothing. If that is not everything, replied Pencroft, laughing and shrugging his shoulders, 
but some day or other we shall find means of going away. Sooner, perhaps, than you imagine, my friends, remarked the engineer, if Lincoln Island is but a medium distance from an inhabited island or from a continent. We shall know in an hour. I have not a map of the Pacific, but my memory has preserved a very clear recollection of its southern part. The latitude which I obtained yesterday placed New Zealand to the west of Lincoln Island, and the coast of Chile to the east. But between these two countries there is a distance of at least six thousand miles. It has therefore to be determined what point in this great space the island occupies, and this the longitude will give us presently, with a sufficient approximation, I hope. Is not the archipelago of the Pomatus the nearest point to us in latitude? asked Herbert. Yes, replied the engineer, but the distance which separates us from it is more than twelve hundred miles. And that way? asked Neb, who followed the conversation with extreme interest, pointing to the south. That way nothing, replied Pencroft. Nothing indeed, added the engineer. Well, Cyrus, asked the reporter, if Lincoln Island is not more than two or three thousand miles from New Zealand or Chile? Well, replied the engineer, instead of building a house we will build a boat, and Master Pencroft shall be put in command. Well, then, cried the sailor, I am quite ready to be captain, as soon as you can make a craft that's able to keep at sea. We shall do it, if it is necessary, replied Cyrus Harding. But while these men, who really hesitated at nothing, were talking, the hour approached at which the observation was to be made. What Cyrus Harding was to do to ascertain the passage of the sun at the meridian of the island, without an instrument of any sort, Herbert could not guess. The observers were then about six miles from the chimneys, not far from that part of the downs in which the engineer had been found after his enigmatical preservation. They halted at this place and prepared for breakfast, for it was half-past eleven. Herbert went for some fresh water from a stream which ran near, and brought it back in a jug which Neb had provided. During these preparations Harding arranged everything for his astronomical observation. He chose a clear place on the shore, which the ebbing tide had left perfectly level. This bed of fine sand was as smooth as ice, not a grain out of place. It was of little importance whether it was horizontal or not, and it did not matter much whether the stick, six feet high, which was planted there, rose perpendicularly. On the contrary, the engineer inclined it towards the south, that is to say, in the direction of the coast opposite to the sun, for it must not be forgotten that the settlers in Lincoln Island, as the island was situated in the southern hemisphere, saw the radiant planet describe its diurnal arc above the northern and not above the southern horizon. Herbert now understood how the engineer was going to proceed to ascertain the culmination of the sun that is to say, it's passing the meridian of the island, or in other words, determining due south. It was by means of the shadow cast on the sand by the stick, a way which, for want of an instrument, would give him a suitable approach to the result which he wished to obtain. In fact, the moment when this shadow would reach its minimum of length would be exactly twelve o'clock. 
and it would be enough to watch the extremity of the shadow, so as to ascertain the instant when, after having successively diminished, it began to lengthen. By inclining his stick to the side opposite to the sun, Cyrus Harding made the shadow longer, and consequently its modifications would be more easily ascertained. In fact, the longer the needle of a dial is, the more easily can the movement of its point be followed. The shadow of the stick was nothing but the needle of a dial. The moment had come, and Cyrus Harding knelt on the sand, and with little wooden pegs which he stuck into the sand, he began to mark the successive diminutions of the stick's shadow. His companions, bending over him, watched the operation with extreme interest. The reporter held his chronometer in his hand, ready to tell the hour which it marked when the shadow would be at its shortest. Moreover, as Cyrus Harding was working on the 16th of April, the day on which the true and the average time are identical, the hour given by Gideon Spilett would be the true hour then at Washington, which would simplify the calculation. Meanwhile, as the sun slowly advanced, the shadow slowly diminished, and when it appeared to Cyrus Harding that it was beginning to increase, he asked, What o'clock is it? One minute past five, replied Gideon Spilett directly. They had now only to calculate the operation. Nothing could be easier. It could be seen that there existed, in round numbers, a distance of five hours between the meridian of Washington and that of Lincoln Island. That is to say, it was midday in Lincoln Island when it was already five o'clock in the evening in Washington. Now the sun, in its apparent movement round the earth, traverses one degree in four minutes, or fifteen degrees an hour. Fifteen degrees multiplied by five hours gives seventy-five degrees. Then, since Washington is seventy-seven degrees three minutes eleven seconds, as much as to say seventy-seven degrees counted from the meridian of Greenwich, which the Americans take for their starting point for longitudes concurrently with the English, it followed that the island must be situated seventy-seven and seventy-five degrees west of the meridian of Greenwich, that is to say, on the hundred and fifty-second degree of west longitude. Cyrus Harding announced this result to his companions, and taking into consideration errors of observation, as he had done for the latitude, he believed he could positively affirm that the position of Lincoln Island was between the thirty-fifth and the thirty-seventh parallel, and between the hundred and fiftieth and the hundred and fifty-fifth meridian to the west of the meridian of Greenwich. The possible fault which he attributed to errors in the observation was, it may be seen, of five degrees on both sides, which, at sixty miles to a degree, would give an error of three hundred miles in latitude and longitude for the exact position. But this error would not influence the determination which it was necessary to take. It was very evident that Lincoln Island was at such a distance from every country or island that it would be too hazardous to attempt to reach one in a frail boat. In fact, this calculation placed it at least twelve hundred miles from Tahiti, and the islands of the archipelago of the Pomatus, more than eighteen hundred miles from New Zealand, and more than four thousand five hundred miles from the American coast. And when Cyrus Harding consulted his memory, 
he could not remember in any way that such an island occupied, in that part of the Pacific, the situation assigned to Lincoln Island. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part One, Chapter 15 The next day, the 17th of April, the sailors' first words were addressed to Gideon Spilett. "'Well, sir,' he asked, "'what shall we do to-day?' "'What the captain pleases,' replied the reporter. Till then the engineer's companions had been brickmakers and potters. Now they were to become metallurgists. The day before, after breakfast, they had explored as far as the point of Mandible Cape, seven miles distant from the chimneys. There the long series of downs ended, and the soil had a volcanic appearance. There were no longer high cliffs as at Prospect Heights, but a strange and capricious border which surrounded the narrow gulf between the two capes, formed of mineral matter thrown up by the volcano. Arrived at this point, the settlers retraced their steps, and at nightfall entered the chimneys, but they did not sleep before the question of knowing whether they could think of leaving Lincoln Island or not was definitely settled. The twelve hundred miles which separated the island from the Pomatus Island was a considerable distance. A boat could not cross it, especially at the approach of the bad season. Pencroft had expressly declared this. Now, to construct a simple boat, even with the necessary tools, was a difficult work, and the colonists not having tools they must begin by making hammers, axes, adzes, saws, augers, planes, etc., which would take some time. It was decided, therefore, that they would winter at Lincoln Island, and that they would look for a more comfortable dwelling than the chimneys in which to pass the winter months. Before anything else could be done, it was necessary to make the iron ore, of which the engineer had observed some traces in the northwest part of the island, fit for use by converting it either into iron or into steel. Metals are not generally found in the ground in a pure state. For the most part they are combined with oxygen or sulphur. Such was the case with the two specimens which Cyrus Harding had brought back, one of magnetic iron, not carbonated, the other a pyrite, also called sulphuret of iron. It was therefore the first, the oxide of iron, which they must reduce with coal, that is to say, get rid of the oxygen, to obtain it in a pure state. This reduction is made by subjecting the ore with coal to a high temperature, either by the rapid and easy Catalan method, which has the advantage of transforming the ore into iron in a single operation, or by the blast furnace, which first smelts the ore, then changes it into iron, by carrying away the three to four percent of coal which is combined with it. Now Cyrus Harding wanted iron, and he wanted to obtain it as soon as possible. The ore which he had picked up was in itself very pure and rich. It was the oxygelous iron, which is found in confused masses of a deep gray color. It gives a black dust, 
crystallized in the form of the regular octahedron. Native lodestones consist of this ore, and iron of the first quality is made in Europe from that with which Sweden and Norway are so abundantly supplied. Not far from this vein was the vein of coal already made use of by the settlers. The ingredients for the manufacture being close together would greatly facilitate the treatment of the ore. This is the cause of the wealth of the mines in Great Britain, where the coal aids the manufacture of the metal extracted from the same soil at the same time as itself. "'Then, Captain,' said Pencroft, "'we are going to work iron ore?' "'Yes, my friend,' replied the engineer, "'and for that, something which will please you, we must begin by having a seal-hunt on the islet.' "'A seal-hunt!' cried the sailor, turning towards Gideon Spilett. Are seals needed to make iron? Since Cyrus has said so, replied the reporter. But the engineer had already left the chimneys, and Pencroft prepared for the seal hunt, without having received any other explanation. Cyrus Harding, Herbert, Gideon Spilett, Neb, and the sailor were soon collected on the shore, at a place where the channel left a ford passable at low tide. The hunters could therefore traverse it without getting wet higher than the knee. Harding then put his foot on the islet for the first, and his companions for the second time. On their landing some hundreds of penguins looked fearlessly at them. The hunters, armed with sticks, could have killed them easily, but they were not guilty of such useless massacre, as it was important not to frighten the seals, who were lying on the sand several cable-lengths off. They also respected certain innocent-looking birds whose wings were reduced to the state of stumps, spread out like fins, ornamented with feathers of a scaly appearance. The settlers, therefore, prudently advanced towards the north point, walking over ground riddled with little holes, which formed nests for the sea-birds. Towards the extremity of the islet appeared great black heads floating just above the water, having exactly the appearance of rocks in motion. These were the seals which were to be captured. It was necessary, however, first to allow them to land, for with their close short hair and their fusiform conformation, being excellent swimmers, it is difficult to catch them in the sea, while on land their short webbed feet prevent their having more than a slow waddling movement. Pencroft knew the habits of these creatures, and he advised waiting till they were stretched on the sand when the sun before long would send them to sleep. They must then manage to cut off their retreat and knock them on the head. The hunters, having concealed themselves behind the rocks, waited silently. An hour passed before the seals came to play on the sand. They could count half a dozen. Pencroft and Herbert then went round the point of the islet, so as to take them in the rear and cut off their retreat. During this time, Cyrus Harding, Spilett, and Neb, crawling behind the rocks, glided toward the future scene of combat. All at once the tall figure of the sailor appeared. Pencroft shouted. The engineer and his two companions threw themselves between the sea and the seals. Two of the animals soon lay dead on the sand, but the rest regained the sea in safety. "'Here are the seals required, Captain,' said the sailor, advancing towards the engineer. "'Capital,' replied Harding. "'We will make bellows of them.' "'Bellows!' cried Pencroft. "'Well, these are lucky seals.' 
It was, in fact, a blowing machine, necessary for the treatment of the ore that the engineer wished to manufacture with the skins of the amphibious creatures. They were of a medium size, for their length did not exceed six feet. They resembled a dog about the head. As it was useless to burden themselves with the weight of both the animals, Neb and Pencroft resolved to skin them on the spot, while Cyrus Harding and the reporter continued to explore the islet. The sailor and the negro cleverly performed the operation, and three hours afterwards Cyrus Harding had at his disposal two seal skins, which he intended to use in this state, without subjecting them to any tanning process. The settlers waited till the tide was again low, and crossing the channel they entered the chimneys. The skins had then to be stretched on a frame of wood, and sewn by means of fibres, so as to preserve the air without allowing too much to escape. Cyrus Harding had nothing but the two steel blades from Top's collar, and yet he was so clever, and his companions aided him with so much intelligence, that three days afterwards the little colony's stock of tools was augmented by a blowing machine, destined to inject the air into the midst of the ore when it should be subjected to heat, an indispensable condition to the success of the operation. On the morning of the 20th of April began the metallic period, as the reporter called it in his notes. The engineer had decided, as has been said, to operate near the veins both of coal and ore. Now, according to his observations, these veins were situated at the foot of the northeast spurs of Mount Franklin, that is to say, a distance of six miles from their home. It was impossible, therefore, to return every day to the chimneys, and it was agreed that the little colony should camp under a hut of branches, so that the important operation could be followed night and day. This settled, they set out in the morning. Neb and Pencroft dragged the bellows on a hurdle, also a quantity of vegetables and animals, which they besides could renew on the way. The road led through Jacamar Wood, which they traversed obliquely from southeast to northwest, and in the thickest part. It was necessary to beat a path, which would in the future form the most direct road to Prospect Heights and Mount Franklin. The trees, belonging to the species already discovered, were magnificent. Herbert found some new ones, among others some which Pencroft called sham-leeks, for, in spite of their size, they were of the same liliaceous family as the onion, chive, shallot, or asparagus. These trees produce ligneous roots, which, when cooked, are excellent. From them, by fermentation, a very agreeable liquor is made. They therefore made a good store of the roots. The journey through the wood was long. It lasted the whole day, and so allowed plenty of time for examining the flora and fauna. Top, who took special charge of the fauna, ran through the grass and brushwood, putting up all sorts of game. Herbert and Gideon Spilett killed two kangaroos with bows and arrows, and also an animal which strongly resembled both a hedgehog and an anteater. It was like the first because it rolled itself into a ball and bristled with spines, and the second because it had sharp claws, a long slender snout which terminated in a bird's beak and an extendable tongue covered with little thorns which served to hold the insects. "'And when it is in the pot,' asked Pencroft naturally, "'what will it be like?' 
"'An excellent piece of beef,' replied Herbert. "'We will not ask more from it,' replied the sailor. During this excursion they saw several wild boars, which, however, did not offer to attack the little band, and it appeared as if they would not meet with any dangerous beasts, when, in a thick part of the wood, the reporter thought he saw, some paces from him, among the lower branches of a tree, an animal which he took for a bear, and which he very tranquilly began to draw. Happily for Gideon Spilett, the animal in question did not belong to the redoubtable family of the plantigrades. It was only a koala, better known under the name of the sloth, being about the size of a large dog, and having stiff hair of a dirty color. The paws armed with strong claws, which enabled it to climb trees and feed on the leaves. Having identified the animal, which they did not disturb, Gideon Spilett erased Bear from the title of his sketch, putting Koala in its place, and the journey was resumed. At five o'clock in the evening Cyrus Harding gave the signal to halt. They were now outside the forest, at the beginning of the powerful spurs which supported Mount Franklin towards the west. At a distance of some hundred feet flowed the Red Creek, and consequently plenty of fresh water was within their reach. The camp was soon organized. In less than an hour, on the edge of the forest, among the trees, a hut of branches interlaced with creepers and pasted over with clay offered a tolerable shelter. Their geological researches were put off till the next day. Supper was prepared, a good fire blazed before the hut, the roast turned, and at eight o'clock, while one of the settlers watched to keep up the fire, in case any wild beasts should prowl in the neighborhood, the others slept soundly. The next day, the twenty-first of April, Cyrus Harding, accompanied by Herbert, went to look for the soil of ancient formation, on which he had already discovered a specimen of ore. They found the vein above ground, near the source of the creek, at the foot of one of the northeastern spurs. This ore, very rich in iron, enclosed in its fusible veinstone, was perfectly suited to the mode of reduction which the engineer intended to employ, that is, the Catalan method, but simplified, as it is used in Corsica. In fact, the Catalan method, properly so called, requires the construction of kilns and crucibles, in which the ore and the coal, placed in alternate layers, are transformed and reduced. But Cyrus Harding intended to concentrate these constructions, and wished simply to form, with the ore and the coal, a cubic mass, to the centre of which he would direct the wind from his bellows. Doubtless it was the proceeding employed by Tubal Cain, and the first metallurgist of the inhabited world. Now that which had succeeded with the grandson of Adam, and which still yielded good results in countries rich in ore and fuel, could not but succeed with the settlers in Lincoln Island. The coal, as well as the ore, was collected without trouble on the surface of the ground. They first broke the ore into little pieces, and cleansed them with the hand from the impurities which soiled their surface. Then coal and ore were arranged in heaps, and in successive layers, as the charcoal burner does with the wood which he wishes to carbonize. In this way, under the influence of the air projected by the blowing machine, the coal would be transformed into carbonic acid, then into oxide of carbon its use being to reduce the oxide of iron, that is to say, to rid it of the oxygen. 
Thus the engineer proceeded. The bellows of sealskin, furnished at its extremity with a nozzle of clay, which had been previously fabricated in the pottery kiln, was established near the heap of ore. Using the mechanism which consisted of a frame, cords of fibre, and counterpoise, he threw into the mass an abundance of air, which by raising the temperature also concurred with the chemical transformation to produce in time pure iron. The operation was difficult. All the patience, all the ingenuity of the settlers was needed, but at last it succeeded, and the result was a lump of iron reduced to a spongy state, which it was necessary to shingle and faggot, that is to say, to forge so as to expel from it the liquefied veinstone. These amateur smiths had, of course, no hammer, but they were in no worse a situation than the first metallurgist, and therefore did what, no doubt, he had to do. A handle was fixed to the first lump, and was used as a hammer to forge the second on a granite anvil, and thus they obtained a coarse but useful metal. At length, after many trials and much fatigue, on the 25th of April several bars of iron were forged, and transformed into tools, crowbars, pincers, pickaxes, spades, etc., which Pencroft and Neb declared to be real jewels. But the metal was not yet in its most serviceable state, that is, of steel. Now steel is a combination of iron and coal, which is extracted, either from the liquid ore, by taking from it the excess of coal, or from the iron by adding to it the coal which was wanting. The first, obtained by the decarburation of the metal, gives natural or puddled steel. The second, produced by the carburation of the iron, gives steel of cementation. It was the last which Cyrus Harding intended to forge, as he possessed iron in a pure state. He succeeded by heating the metal with powdered coal in a crucible which had previously been manufactured from clay suitable for the purpose. He then worked this steel, which is malleable both when hot or cold, with the hammer. Neb and Pencroft, cleverly directed, made hatchets, which, heated red-hot, and plunged suddenly into cold water, acquired an excellent temper. Other instruments, of course roughly fashioned, were also manufactured, blades for planes, axes, hatchets, pieces of steel to be transformed into saws, chisels, then iron for spades, pickaxes, hammers, nails, etc. At last, on the 5th of May, the metallic period ended, the smiths returned to the chimneys, and new work would soon authorize them to take a fresh title. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 1. Chapter 16. It was the 6th of May, a day which corresponds to the 6th of November in the countries of the Northern Hemisphere. The sky had been obscured for some days, and it was of importance to make preparations for the winter. However, the temperature was not as yet much lower, and a centigrade thermometer, transported to Lincoln Island, would still have marked an average of ten to twelve degrees above zero. 
This was not surprising, since Lincoln Island, probably situated between the thirty-fifth and fortieth parallel, would be subject, in the southern hemisphere, to the same climate as Sicily or Greece in the northern hemisphere. But as Greece and Sicily have severe cold, producing snow and ice, so doubtless would Lincoln Island in the severest part of the winter, and it was advisable to provide against it. In any case, if cold did not yet threaten them, the rainy season would begin, and on this lonely island, exposed to all the fury of the elements, in mid-ocean, bad weather would be frequent and probably terrible. The question of a more comfortable dwelling than the chimneys must therefore be seriously considered and promptly resolved on. Pencroft naturally had some predilection for the retreat which he had discovered, but he well understood that another must be found. The chimneys had already been visited by the sea, under circumstances which are known, and it would not do to be exposed again to a similar accident. Besides, added Cyrus Harding, who this day was talking of these things with his companions, we have some precautions to take. Why, the island is not inhabited, said the reporter. That is probable, replied the engineer, although we have not yet explored the interior. But if no human beings are found, I fear that dangerous animals may abound. It is necessary to guard against a possible attack, so that we shall not be obliged to watch every night, or to keep up a fire. And then, my friends, we must foresee everything. We are here in a part of the Pacific often frequented by Malay pirates. What? said Herbert. At such a distance from land? Yes, my boy, replied the engineer. These pirates are bold sailors as well as formidable enemies, and we must take measures accordingly. Well, replied Pencroft, we will fortify ourselves against savages with two legs as well as against savages with four. But, Captain, will it not be best to explore every part of the island before undertaking anything else? That would be best, added Gideon Spilett. Who knows if we might not find on the opposite side one of the caverns which we have searched for in vain here? That is true, replied the engineer. But you forget, my friends, that it will be necessary to establish ourselves in the neighborhood of a watercourse, and that, from the summit of Mount Franklin, we could not see towards the west either stream or river. Here, on the contrary, we are placed between the Mercy and Lake Grant, an advantage which must not be neglected. And besides, this side, looking towards the east, is not exposed as the other is to the trade winds, which in this hemisphere blow from the northwest. Then, Captain, replied the sailor, let us build a house on the edge of the lake. Neither bricks nor tools are wanting now. After having been brickmakers, potters, smelters, and smiths, we shall surely know how to be masons. Yes, my friend, but before coming to any decision we must consider the matter thoroughly. A natural dwelling would spare us much work, and would be a surer retreat, for it would be as well defended against enemies from the interior as those from outside. That is true, Cyrus, replied the reporter, but we have already examined all that mass of granite, and there is not a hole, not a cranny. No, not one, added Pencroft. Ah, if we were able to dig out a dwelling in that cliff, at a good height, so as to be out of the reach of harm, 
That would be capital. I can see that on the front which looks seaward. Five or six rooms. With windows to light them, said Herbert, laughing. And a staircase to climb up to them, added Neb. You are laughing, cried the sailor, and why? What is there impossible in what I propose? Haven't we got pickaxes and spades? Won't Captain Harding be able to make powder to blow up the mine? Isn't it true, Captain, that you will make powder the very day we want it? Cyrus Harding listened to the enthusiastic Pencroft developing his fanciful projects. To attack this mass of granite, even by a mine, was Herculean work, and it was really vexing that nature could not help them at their need. But the engineer did not reply to the sailor except by proposing to examine the cliff more attentively from the mouth of the river to the angle which terminated it on the north. They went out, therefore, and the exploration was made with extreme care over an extent of nearly two miles, but in no place in the bare, straight cliff could any cavity be found. The nests of the rock-pigeons which fluttered at its summit were only, in reality, holes bored at the very top and on the irregular edge of the granite. It was a provoking circumstance, and as to attacking this cliff, either with pickaxe or with powder, so as to effect a sufficient excavation, it was not to be thought of. It so happened that, on all this part of the shore, Pencroft had discovered the only habitable shelter, that is to say, the chimneys, which now had to be abandoned. The exploration ended. The colonists found themselves at the north angle of the cliff where it terminated in long slopes which died away on the shore. From this place, to its extreme limit in the west, it only formed a sort of declivity, a thick mass of stones, earth, and sand, bound together by plants, bushes, and grass, inclined at an angle of only forty-five degrees. Clumps of trees grew on these slopes, which were also carpeted with thick grass. But the vegetation did not extend far and a long, sandy plain, which began at the foot of these slopes, reached to the beach. Cyrus Harding thought, not without reason, that the overplus of the lake must overflow on this side. The excess of water furnished by the Red Creek must also escape by some channel or other. Now the engineer had not yet found this channel on any part of the shore already explored, that is to say, from the mouth of the stream on the west of Prospect Heights. The engineer now proposed to his companions to climb the slope, and to return to the chimneys by the heights, while exploring the northern and eastern shores of the lake. The proposal was accepted, and in a few minutes Herbert and Neb were on the upper plateau. Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, and Pencroft followed with more sedate steps. The beautiful sheet of water glittered through the trees under the rays of the sun. In this direction the country was charming. The eye feasted on the groups of trees. Some old trunks, bent with age, showed black against the verdant grass which covered the ground. Crowds of brilliant cockatoos screamed among the branches, moving prisms, hopping from one bough to another. The settlers, instead of going directly to the north bank of the lake, made a circuit round the edge of the plateau, so as to join the mouth of the creek on its left bank. It was a detour of more than a mile and a half. Walking was easy, for the trees widely spread, 
left a considerable space between them. The fertile zone evidently stopped at this point, and vegetation would be less vigorous in the part between the course of the creek and the Mercy. Cyrus Harding and his companions walked over this new ground with great care. Bows, arrows, and sticks with sharp iron points were their only weapons. However, no wild beast showed itself, and it was probable that these animals frequented, rather, the thick forests in the south. But the settlers had the disagreeable surprise of seeing top stop before a snake of great size, measuring from fourteen to fifteen feet in length. Neb killed it by a blow from his stick. Cyrus Harding examined the reptile, and declared it not venomous, for it belonged to that species of diamond serpents which the natives of New South Wales rear. But it was possible that others existed whose bite was mortal, such as the deaf vipers with forked tails, which rise up under the feet, or those winged snakes, furnished with two ears, which enable them to proceed with great rapidity. Top, the first moment of surprise over, began a reptile chase with such eagerness that they feared for his safety. His master called him back directly. The mouth of the Red Creek, at the place where it entered into the lake, was soon reached. The explorers recognized on the opposite shore the point which they had visited on their descent from Mount Franklin. Cyrus Harding ascertained that the flow of water into it from the creek was considerable. Nature must, therefore, have provided some place for the escape of the overplus. This doubtless formed a fall which, if it could be discovered, would be of great use. The colonists, walking apart, but not straying far from each other, began to skirt the edge of the lake, which was very steep. The water appeared to be full of fish, and Pencroft resolved to make some fishing-rods, so as to try and catch some. The northeast point was first to be doubled. It might have been supposed that the discharge of water was at this place, for the extremity of the lake was almost on a level with the edge of the plateau. But no signs of this were discovered, and the colonists continued to explore the bank, which, after a slight bend, descended parallel to the shore. On this side the banks were less woody, but clumps of trees here and there added to the picturesqueness of the country. Lake Grant was viewed from thence in all its extent, and no breath disturbed the surface of its waters. Top, in beating the bushes, put up flocks of birds of different kinds, which Gideon Spilett and Herbert saluted with arrows. One was hit by the lad, and fell into some marshy grass. Top rushed forward, and brought a beautiful swimming bird of a slate color, short beak, very developed frontal plate, and wings edged with white. It was a coot, the size of a large partridge, belonging to the group of macrodactyls which form the transition between the order of wading birds and that of palmipeds. Sorry game, in truth, and its flavor is far from pleasant. But Top was not so particular in these things as his master's, and it was agreed that the coot should be for his supper. The settlers were now following the eastern bank of the lake, and they would not be long in reaching the part which they already knew. The engineer was much surprised at not seeing any indication of the discharge of water. The reporter and the sailor talked with him, and he could not conceal his astonishment. At this moment Top 
who had been very quiet till then, gave signs of agitation. The intelligent animal went backwards and forwards on the shore, stopped suddenly, and looked at the water, one paw raised, as if he was pointing at some invisible game. Then he barked furiously and was suddenly silent. Neither Cyrus Harding nor his companions had at first paid any attention to Top's behavior, but the dog's barking soon became so frequent that the engineer noticed it. "'What is there there, Top?' he asked. The dog bounded towards his master, seeming to be very uneasy, and then rushed again towards the bank. Then all at once he plunged into the lake. "'Here, Top!' cried Cyrus Harding, who did not like his dog to venture into the treacherous water. "'What's happening down there?' asked Pencroft, examining the surface of the lake. "'Top smells some amphibious creature,' replied Herbert. "'An alligator, perhaps,' said the reporter. "'I do not think so,' replied Harding. "'Alligators are only met with in regions less elevated in latitude.' Meanwhile Top had returned at his master's call, and had regained the shore. But he could not stay quiet. He plunged in among the tall grass, and, guided by instinct, he appeared to follow some invisible being which was slipping along under the surface of the water. However, the water was calm. Not a ripple disturbed its surface. Several times the settler stopped on the bank and observed it attentively. Nothing appeared. There was some mystery there. The engineer was puzzled. "'Let us pursue this exploration to the end,' said he. Half an hour after, they had all arrived at the southeast angle of the lake, on Prospect Heights. At this point the examination of the banks of the lake was considerably finished, and yet the engineer had not been able to discover how and where the waters were discharged. "'There is no doubt this overflow exists,' he repeated and since it is not visible it must go through a granite cliff at the west. "'But what importance do you attach to knowing that, my dear Cyrus?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'Considerable importance,' replied the engineer. "'For if it flows through the cliff there is probably some cavity, which it would be easy to render habitable after turning away the water.' "'But is it not possible, Captain, that the water flows away at the bottom of the lake?' said Herbert, and that it reaches the sea by some subterranean passage? That might be, replied the engineer, and should it be so we shall be obliged to build our house ourselves, since nature has not done it for us. The colonists were about to begin to traverse the plateau to return to the chimneys, when Top gave new signs of agitation. He barked with fury, and before his master could restrain him, he had plunged a second time into the lake. All ran towards the bank. The dog was already more than twenty feet off, and Cyrus was calling him back, when an enormous head emerged from the water, which did not appear to be deep in that place. Herbert recognized directly the species of amphibian to which the tapering head, with large eyes, and adorned with long, silky moustaches, belonged. "'A lamentin!' he cried. It was not a lamentin, but one of that species of the order of cetaceans, which bear the name of the dugong, for its nostrils were open at the upper part of its snout. The enormous animal rushed on the dog, who tried to escape by returning towards the shore. 
his master could do nothing to save him, and before Gideon Spilett or Herbert thought of bending their bows, Top, seized by the dugong, had disappeared beneath the water. Neb, his iron-tipped spear in his hand, wished to go to Top's help, and attack the dangerous animal in its own element. "'No, Neb,' said the engineer, restraining his courageous servant. Meanwhile a struggle was going on beneath the water, an inexplicable struggle, for in his situation Top could not possibly resist, and judging by the bubbling of the surface it must also be a terrible struggle, and could not but terminate in the death of the dog. But suddenly, in the middle of a foaming circle, Top reappeared. Thrown in the air by some unknown power, he rose ten feet above the surface of the lake, fell again into the midst of the agitated waters, and then soon gained the shore, without any severe wounds, miraculously saved. Cyrus Harding and his companions could not understand it. What was not less inexplicable was that the struggle still appeared to be going on. Doubtless the dugong, attacked by some powerful animal, after having released the dog, was fighting on its own account. But it did not last long. The water became red with blood, and the body of the dugong, emerging from the sheet of scarlet which spread around, soon stranded on a little beach at the south angle of the lake. The colonists ran towards it. The dugong was dead. It was an enormous animal, fifteen or sixteen feet long, and must have weighed from three to four thousand pounds. At its neck was a wound, which appeared to have been produced by a sharp blade. What could the amphibious creature have been, who, by this terrible blow, had destroyed the formidable dugong? No one could tell, and much interested in this incident, Harding and his companions returned to the chimneys. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 1, Chapter 17. The next day, the 7th of May, Harding and Gideon Spilett, leaving Neb to prepare breakfast, climbed Prospect Heights, while Herbert and Pencroft ascended by the river to renew their store of wood. The engineer and the reporter soon reached the little beach on which the dugong had been stranded. Already flocks of birds had attacked the mass of flesh, and had to be driven away with stones, for Cyrus wished to keep the fat for the use of the colony. As to the animal's flesh, it would furnish excellent food, for in the islands of the Malay archipelago and elsewhere. It is especially reserved for the table of the native princes, but that was Neb's affair. At this moment Cyrus Harding had other thoughts. He was much interested in the incident of the day before. He wished to penetrate the mystery of that submarine combat, and to ascertain what monster could have given the dugong so strange a wound. He remained at the edge of the lake, looking, observing. But nothing appeared under the tranquil waters which sparkled in the first rays of the rising sun. At the beach, on which lay the body of the dugong, the water was tolerably shallow, but from this point the bottom of the lake sloped gradually, 
and it was probable that the depth was considerable in the centre. The lake might be considered as a large centre basin, which was filled by the water from the Red Creek. "'Well, Cyrus,' said the reporter, "'there seems to be nothing suspicious in this water.' "'No, my dear Spilett,' replied the engineer, "'and I really do not know how to account for the incident of yesterday.' "'I acknowledge,' returned Spilett, "'that the wound given this creature is at least very strange, and I cannot explain either how Top was so vigorously cast up out of the water.' one could have thought that a powerful arm hurled him up, and that the same arm with a dagger killed the dugong. Yes, replied the engineer, who had become thoughtful. There is something there that I cannot understand. But do you better understand either, my dear Spilett, in what way I was saved myself? How I was drawn from the waves and carried to the downs? No! Is it not true? Now, I feel sure that there is some mystery there, which doubtless we shall discover some day. Let us observe, but do not dwell on these singular incidents before our companions. Let us keep our remarks to ourselves, and continue our work. It will be remembered that the engineer had not as yet been able to discover the place where the surplus water escaped, but he knew it must exist somewhere. He was much surprised to see a strong current at this place. By throwing in some bits of wood he found that it set towards the southern angle. He followed the current, and arrived at the south point of the lake. There was there a, a sort of depression in the water, as if it was suddenly lost in some fissure in the ground. Harding listened. Placing his ear to the level of the lake, he very distinctly heard the noise of a subterranean fall. There, said he, rising, is the discharge of the water. There, doubtless, by a passage in the granite cliff, it joins the sea, through cavities which we can use to our profit. Well, I can find it. The engineer cut a long branch, stripped it of its leaves, and plunging it into the angle between the two banks, he found that there was a large hole, one foot only beneath the surface of the water. This hole was the opening so long looked for in vain, and the force of the current was such that the branch was torn from the engineer's hands and disappeared. "'There is no doubt about it now,' repeated Harding. "'There is the outlet, and I will lay it open to view.' "'How?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'By lowering the level of the water of the lake three feet.' "'And how will you lower the level?' "'By opening another outlet larger than this.' At what place, Cyrus? At the part of the bank nearest the coast. But it is a mass of granite, observed Spilett. Well, replied Cyrus Harding, I will blow up the granite, and the water escaping will subside, so as to lay bare this opening. And make a waterfall by falling on to the beach, added the reporter. A fall that we shall make use of, replied Cyrus. Come, come. The engineer hurried away his companion, whose confidence in Harding was such that he did not doubt the enterprise would succeed. And yet how was this granite wall to be opened without powder, and with imperfect instruments? Was not this work upon which the engineer was so bent above their strength? When Harding and the reporter entered the chimneys, they found Herbert and Pencroft unloading their raft of wood. "'The woodmen have just finished, Captain.' 
said the sailor, laughing. "'And when you want masons—' "'Masons, no, but chemists,' replied the engineer. "'Yes,' added the reporter. "'We are going to blow up the island.' "'Blow up the island!' cried Pencroft. "'A part of it, at least,' replied Spilett. "'Listen to me, my friends,' said the engineer, and he made known to them the result of his observations. According to him, a cavity, more or less considerable, must exist in the mass of granite which supported Prospect Heights, and he intended to penetrate into it. To do this, the opening through which the water rushed must first be cleared, and the level lowered by making a larger outlet. Therefore an explosive substance must be manufactured, which would make a deep trench in some other part of the shore. This was what Harding was going to attempt with the minerals which nature placed at his disposal. It is useless to say with what enthusiasm all, especially Pencroft, received this project. To employ great means, open the granite, create a cascade, that suited the sailor. And he would just as soon be a chemist as a mason or bootmaker, since the engineer wanted chemicals. He would be all that they liked, even a professor of dancing and deportment, said he to Neb, if that was ever necessary. Neb and Pencroft were first of all told to extract the grease from the dugong, and to keep the flesh, which was destined for food. Such perfect confidence had they in the engineer, that they set out directly, without even asking a question. A few minutes after them, Cyrus Harding, Herbert, and Gideon Spilett, dragging the hurdle, went towards the vein of coals, where whose schistose pyrites abound which are met with in the most recent transition soil, and of which Harding had already found a specimen. All the day being employed in carrying a quantity of these stones to the chimneys, by evening they had several tons. The next day, the 8th of May, the engineer began his manipulations. These schistose pyrites, being composed principally of coal, flint, alumina, and sulphuret of iron, the latter in excess, it was necessary to separate the sulphuret of iron, and transform it into sulphate as rapidly as possible. The sulphate obtained, the sulphuric acid could then be extracted. This was the object to be attained. Sulphuric acid is one of the agents the most frequently employed, and the manufacturing importance of a nation can be measured by the consumption which is made of it. This acid would later be of great use to the settlers, in the manufacturing of candles, tanning skins, etc., but this time the engineer reserved it for another use. Cyrus Harding chose, behind the chimneys, a site where the ground was perfectly level. On this ground he placed a layer of branches and chopped wood, on which were piled some pieces of schistose pyrites, buttressed one against the other, and the whole, being covered with a thin layer of pyrites, previously reduced to the size of a nut. This done, they set fire to the wood. The heat was communicated to the schist, which soon kindled, since it contains coal and sulphur. Then new layers of bruised pyrites were arranged so as to form an immense heap, the exterior of which was covered with earth and grass, several air-holes being left, as if it was a stack of wood which was to be carbonized to make charcoal. They then left the transformation to complete itself, and it would not take less than ten or twelve days 
for the sulfuretted of iron to be changed to sulphate of iron, and the alumina into sulphate of alumina, two equally soluble substances, the others, flint, burnt coal, and cinders, not being so. While this chemical work was going on, Cyrus Harding proceeded with other operations, which were pursued with more than zeal. It was eagerness. Neb and Pencroft had taken away the fat from the dugong, and placed it in large earthen pots. It was then necessary to separate the glycerin from the fat by saponifying it. Now, to obtain this result, it had to be treated either with soda or lime. In fact, one or other of these substances, after having attacked the fat, would form a soap by separating the glycerin, and it was just this glycerin which the engineer wished to obtain. There was no want of lime. Only treatment by lime would give calcareous soap, insoluble and consequently useless, while treatment by soda would furnish, on the contrary, a soluble soap which could be put to domestic use. Now a practical man, like Cyrus Harding, would rather try to obtain soda. Was this difficult? No, for marine plants abounded on the shore, glasswort, ficoides, and all those fucaceae which form rack. A large quantity of these plants was collected, first dried, then burnt in holes in the open air. The combustion of these plants was kept up for several days, and the result was a compact grey mass, which has long been known under the name of natural soda. This obtained, the engineer treated the fat with soda, which gave both the soluble soap and that neutral substance, glycerin. But this was not all. Cyrus Harding still needed, in view of his future preparation, another substance, nitrate of potash, which is better known under the name of salt nitre, or of saltpetre. Cyrus Harding could have manufactured this substance by treating the carbonate of potash, which would be easily extracted from the cinders of the vegetables, by azotic acid. But this acid was wanting, and he would have been in some difficulty, if nature had not happily furnished the saltpetre, without giving them any other trouble than that of picking it up. Herbert found a vein of it at the foot of Mount Franklin, and they had nothing to do but purify this salt. These different works lasted a week. They were finished before the transformation of the sulfuret into sulphate of iron had been accomplished. During the following days, the settlers had time to construct a furnace of bricks of a particular arrangement, to serve for the distillation of the sulphate of iron when it had been obtained. All this was finished about the 18th of May, nearly at the time when the chemical transformation terminated. Gideon Spilett, Herbert, Neb, and Pencroft, skillfully directed by the engineer, had become most clever workmen. Before all masters, necessity is the one most listened to, and who teaches the best. When the heap of pyrites had been entirely reduced by fire, the result of the operation, consisting of sulphate of iron, sulphate of alumina, flint, remains of coal, and cinders was placed in a basin full of water. They stirred this mixture, let it settle, then decanted it, and obtained a clear liquid containing in solution sulphate of iron and sulphate of alumina, the other matters remaining solid since they are insoluble. Lastly, this liquid being partly evaporated, crystals of sulphate of iron were deposited, 
and the not evaporated liquid, which contained the sulphate of alumina, was thrown away. Cyrus Harding had now at his disposal a large quantity of these sulphate of iron crystals, from which the sulphuric acid had to be extracted. The making of sulphuric acid is a very expensive manufacture. Considerable works are necessary. A special set of tools, an apparatus of platina, leaden chambers, unassailable by the acid, and in which the transformation is performed, etc. The engineer had none of these at his disposal, but he knew that, in Bohemia especially, sulphuric acid is manufactured by very simple means, which have also the advantage of producing it to a superior degree of concentration. It is thus that the acid known under the name of Nordhausen acid is made. To obtain sulphuric acid, Cyrus Harding had only one operation to make, to calcine the sulphate of iron crystals in a closed vase, so that the sulphuric acid should distill in vapor, which vapor, by condensation, would produce the acid. The crystals were placed in pots, and the heat from the furnace would distill the sulphuric acid. The operation was successfully completed, and on the 20th of May, twelve days after commencing it, the engineer was the possessor of the agent which later he hoped to use in so many different ways. Now, why did he wish for this agent? Simply to produce azotic acid, and that was easy, since saltpeter, attacked by sulfuric acid, gives azotic, or nitric, acid by distillation. But, after all, how was he going to employ this azotic acid? His companions were still ignorant of this, for he had not informed them of the result at which he aimed. However, the engineer had nearly accomplished his purpose, and by a last operation he would procure the substance which had given so much trouble. Taking some azotic acid, he mixed it with glycerin, which had been previously concentrated by evaporation subjected to the water-bath, and he obtained, without even employing a refrigerant mixture, several pints of an oily yellow mixture. This last operation Cyrus Harding had made alone, in a retired place, at a distance from the chimneys, for he feared the danger of an explosion, and when he showed a bottle of this liquid to his friends, he contented himself with saying, Here is nitroglycerin. It was really this terrible production, of which the explosive power is perhaps tenfold that of ordinary powder, and which has already caused so many accidents. However, since a way has been found to transform it into dynamite, that is to say, to mix it with some solid substance, clay or sugar, porous enough to hold it, the dangerous liquid has been used with some security. But dynamite was not yet known at the time when the settlers worked on Lincoln Island. "'And is it that liquid that is going to blow up our rocks?' said Pencroft incredulously. "'Yes, my friend,' replied the engineer. "'And this nitroglycerin will produce so much the more effect, as the granite is extremely hard, and will oppose a greater resistance to the explosion.' "'And when shall we see this, Captain?' "'Tomorrow, as soon as we have dug a hole for the mine,' replied the engineer." The next day, the 21st of May, at daybreak, the miners went to the point which formed the eastern shore of Lake Grant, and was only five hundred feet from the coast. 
At this place the plateau inclined downwards from the waters, which were only restrained by their granite case. Therefore, if this case was broken, the water would escape by the opening and form a stream which, flowing over the inclined surface of the plateau, would rush on to the beach. Consequently, the level of the lake would be greatly lowered, and the opening where the water escaped would be exposed, which was their final aim. Under the engineer's directions, Pencroft, armed with a pickaxe, which he handled skillfully and vigorously, attacked the granite. The hole was made on the point of the shore, slanting, so that it should meet a much lower level than that of the water of the lake. In this way the explosive force, by scattering the rock, would open a large place for the water to rush out. The work took some time, for the engineer, wishing to produce a great effect, intended to devote not less than seven quarts of nitroglycerin to the operation. But Pencroft, relieved by Neb, did so well that towards four o'clock in the evening the mine was finished. Now the question of setting fire to the explosive substance was raised. Generally, nitroglycerin is ignited by caps of fulminate, which in bursting caused the explosion. A shock is therefore needed to produce the explosion, for, simply lighted, this substance would burn without exploding. Cyrus Harding could certainly have fabricated a percussion cap. In default of fulminate, he could easily obtain a substance similar to gun cotton, since he had azotic acid at his disposal. This substance, pressed in a cartridge, and introduced among the nitroglycerin, would burst by means of a fuse and cause the explosion. But Cyrus Harding knew that nitroglycerin would explode by a shock. He resolved to employ this means and try another way, if this did not succeed. In fact, the blow of a hammer on a few drops of nitroglycerin, spread out on a hard surface, was enough to create an explosion. But the operator could not be there to give the blow without becoming a victim to the operation. Harding, therefore, thought of suspending a mass of iron weighing several pounds, by means of a fibre, to an upright just above the mine. Another long fibre, previously impregnated with sulphur, was attached to the middle of the first, by one end, while the other lay on the ground several feet distant from the mine. The second fibre being set on fire, it would burn till it reached the first. This catching fire in its turn would break, and the mass of iron would fall on the nitroglycerin. This apparatus being then arranged, the engineer, after having sent his companions to a distance, filled the hole, so that the nitroglycerin was on a level with the opening. Then he threw a few drops of it on the surface of the rock, above which the mass of iron was already suspended. This done, Harding lit the end of the sulphured fibre, and leaving the place, he returned with his companions to the chimneys. The fibre was intended to burn five and twenty minutes, and in fact five and twenty minutes afterwards a most tremendous explosion was heard. The island appeared to tremble to its very foundations. Stones were projected in the air as if by the eruption of a volcano. The shock produced by the displacing of the air was such that the rocks of the chimneys shook. The settlers, although they were more than two miles from the mine, were thrown on the ground. They rose, climbed the plateau, and ran towards the place where the bank of the lake must have been shattered by the explosion. 
A cheer escaped them. A large rent was seen in the granite. A rapid stream of water rushed foaming across the plateau, and dashed down a height of three hundred feet on to the beach. End of chapter. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.